Thanks for downloading this podcast. podcast. It's for personal use only and must not be rebroadcast, reproduced or used in any form without permission. Tell your friends they can get their own copy by searching iTunes for Radio Le Mans or visiting RadioLeMans.com. Good evening and welcome to the RS1 Formula 1 preview for 2020. Uh, two hours of looking ahead to what is currently a 21 race season, but by the end of the show could be shorter than that or longer than that. We don't really know. Uh, as ever, I am joined by two fantastic experts on the subject of Formula 1. Our Formula 1 correspondent, Nick Damon. Hooray! And... Uh, <laughs> engineering journalist Sam Collins let's start with Sam and uh, everyone's saying technical regulations haven't changed everything's the same as last year that's not quite true is it it's not exactly true there are some very very small changes the cars are one kilogram heavier because they have a second fuel flow sensor in the fuel tank to stop um, anybody cheating which of course never happens in formula one nobody cheated at the end of 2019 while painting their cars red no um and definitely not involving fuel flow or fuel of any sort no no they weren't storing lots of extra fuel past the fuel flow sensor that that didn't happen so that really is the biggest significant rule change there is i mean there's a few detailed bits and pieces on your oil specification um, some other little bits and bobs but really the only major rule change year on year is that second fuel flow sensor which isn't in theory a big rule change so the amount of fuel that can be outside of the fuel tank has been reduced from two liters to 250 mils does that suggest that someone was trying that old NASCAR trick of running fuel lines um, round and round in circles all around the roll cage uh, just to try and get more fuel into the car without having a bigger fuel tank. That's exactly what it suggests. I I, I think it's... We still are unclear about exactly what went on late last year, but one of the the Ferrari fuel system was seized. The Mm -hmm. rule was then changed to this uh, 250 milliliter regulation rather than two liter regulation on safety grounds because the FI felt that it was unsafe to have two liters of fuel sloshing around between the fuel cell and the engine itself. Um, I suspect they found something, but as we have heard, uh, they haven't found anyone officially being naughty. So I think there was some magic expanding fuel line or something or some sort of extra tank in there um but we don't know the details so what what diameter generally would a fuel line be and therefore how long uh is the fuel line going to be to hold two liters well uh, that's that's the question isn't it i mean the fuel the fuel lines are a pretty standard diameter i can't remember the exact number but you see them they're these almost swage fitted little metal pipes that run through you know between the the fuel tank and and the, the the input for the power unit for the engine but and they're, they're very high pressure as well because these direct in, injected engines are extremely high pressure uh, fuel systems so they've got a low pressure pump and a high pressure pump and the only real way i think to get this two liters in there would be extremely long fuel lines as you suggested almost like an old whiskey still or perhaps there was this auxiliary tank um and that would allow you to 
smooth out perhaps or perhaps run at very high demand slightly more than the maximum allowed fuel flow um, and that's slightly interesting to see how they did that one of the key points here is that one of the ferraris was found running more fuel than the team claimed was in the car at the final race of the year now they were hit with i think a fifty thousand euro fine for that which is really a slap on the wrists because it does make it sound very much like they weren't playing ball okay something else that's uh changed and again very minor uh teams no longer able to buy third-party brake ducts they have to make their own why is that um this is just to stop um and we're going to get onto this a little bit more i think as we talk through the cars um haas is the team that's pushed this to the absolute limit within the technical regulations a formula one team must make certain parts of its own car which are essentially the monocoque the chassis itself the front impact structure, which is the nose, the cooling system, which is the radiators and those bits and pieces, and its front and rear wings. Now, added to that this year are the brake ducts. The, the reason for that is essentially Formula One wants each of it, the teams to at least design all of its own components that the fans can see, all of its own wetted surfaces, all the only aerodynamics. Um, Haas is interesting in 2020 because its brake ducts are extraordinarily similar to the ones Ferrari used last year. This isn't a surprise because in 2019, Haas was allowed to use the Ferrari brake ducts. So what it's just done is carried those brake ducts over into 2020. Whether that is really permitted under the technical regulations or under these regulations that, that restrict which parts you have to build and which parts you can buy is a little bit of a grey area, because if they are using last year's Ferrari ducks, well, surely then they didn't do it themselves. So but, that's... but if I was told, if I run a Formula 1 team and was told about this rule change and therefore had to design a uh, brake duct, the first thing I'd do is take the brake duct that we're already using and draw a picture of it and say, that's my design. Well, that's exactly the, that's the exact argument. And as I say, we are definitely coming back to this a little bit more. That's the exact argument. You could say, well, then did you design it or did you just copy a design? And is it a copy to design really designing? And then is it really your IP? And that's a whole question that is a little bit untested. And you'll see that in a few other areas on a couple of other cars as well. Uh, the Alpha Tauri springs to mind. Um, it, it, it's a, yeah, it's not a clear-cut thing in that situation, and I do wonder if it's going to get tested at some point this season legally. Uh, we shall see uh, at a point where Haas are expected to do well. Whether anyone challenges their brake ducts, uh, we'll come on to that later because uh, I'm struggling to think of anywhere where I'm expecting Haas to do well, and uh, I'm sure that Nick and Sam will have that have their own views on that. Uh, Absolutely. Uh, jump starts are missing the way bridge. This is more of a sporting uh, change than a technical change, isn't it? But uh, uh, different penalties. Yeah, this is. I think this is a lot more down to just dealing with a few little anomalies that cropped up last year. Missing the way bridge, a few drivers did it accidentally or accidentally on purpose. I think one of the Toro Rossos might be accused of that. Um, that's just a slightly different penalty. Jump starts is a little bit different. If you remember, the um, Alfa Romeos got disqualified mm. um, from one of the races for what was essentially a legal driver aid because the drivers, I think it was in Hockenheim, the, because of the wet start, 
the calibration on the start system was a little bit too good. And the FI picked up that it was faster than the human could respond, so the cars were almost self-starting. Uh, the regulations on this have been adjusted slightly so that that's very clear that that can't happen again, because actually with those Alfa Romeos, there wasn't really an accusation that they were cheating. It's just the rules didn't really cover that scenario. And I think this it's just a little bit of, sort of filling in the holes in the regulations there rather than actually a proper rule change. Uh, there's a lot less testing as well, uh, no in-season tests, and the two tests in Barcelona were both uh, one day shorter, so uh, we've just had six days so far rather than eight that we'd have had in previous years, and nothing more to come. doesn't really matter, does it? I mean, if you look at the reliability of the cars in Barcelona, I mean, I think the teams wouldn't admit to it because the engineers will always find something to work on, but by the sixth day, I think the teams were kind of wondering what was left to do. I mean, every team was pumping in race distances over and over and over again. It's one of those, uh, I think I saw a stat uh, recently that um, in the history of Formula One, there have only been five races where all the cars that started got to the finish and four of them have been in the last three years. Well, I think that stat's going to at least double this year unless, well, certain drivers get involved. Uh, one other uh, thing is that uh, team personnel get an extra hour in bed. Wonderful. Um, they've been told that the gap between when they leave the circuit at night and when they return in the morning, uh, which was previously a minimum of eight hours, is now a minimum of nine hours. Well, that's a very good, sensible idea. Formula One needs to be doing more to look after team personnel um, because it's absolutely with the schedule that there is in Formula One now, the number of races and the workload at those races, these guys and girls are not getting adequate rest. And that's taking its toll on people. I mean, there's a lot of burnout in, in motor racing, and particularly in Formula One at the moment. And I think it's good to see this rule change. I wish it was actually slightly bigger. It was two hours extra. Uh, and finally, uh, this is more of a technical thing, but it is going back to the demands of the long calendar. Uh, they're allowed an extra MG UK this year. Yeah, that's right. That's just because of the length of the calendar. Um, the extra MG UK is because the calendar, well, in theory, has an extra race in it, um, whether in it practice. does or not. In practice, we don't know. And that does raise the whole question of, Depending on how many races there are this season, will the teams retain this extra MGUK or will they not? My suspicion is they will regardless, which you might see them all turning them up to max or having some sort of uh, single race specials or something later in the season. But it really depends how many races we have this year. And on that subject, 22 on the published calendar. One, the Chinese Grand Prix has been postponed. Uh it's looking like there were some others at risk, uh, but for the time being, uh, nothing else is certain. Uh, the minimum number of races you can have and still call this a championship is eight. We're not going to fall that low, are we? I, I don't think we will, but the situation we're in is very unpredictable, as everybody knows just from watching the news at the moment. Obviously, with the whole of Italy on quarantine... That raises a real challenge for not just two of the teams, but a bunch of the suppliers. Don't forget, every single tyre on these cars is supplied by Pirelli. 
Now, those tyres are manufactured in Turkey, not in Italy, and a lot of the technical support guys come from the UK. So that, in the immediate situation, isn't a great problem. More of a situation are the clutches and brakes, which predominantly in Formula 1 are coming from Brembo. Yeah. who are based in 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 in, in the one of the what they call the red zones in Italy where the the, the coronavirus is it's at it's highest now i spoke to brembo yesterday and they have told me that at the moment they can't send technical support staff to the races the first three races however they the teams have enough hardware to keep them going for the first couple of months so right through till the end of April. However, when the European season starts in the Netherlands, if that's when indeed it does start, then there is a little bit of an issue with supply of those brake discs, clutches and brake pads. These take about six months to manufacture. And now whether Rembo can get all of their staff into the factory in Italy to continue the manufacturing process is a big question mark. But on top of that, you have the situation for the staff, also for Magnetti Morelli, or now as Morelli as they're called, who do a lot of the fuel pump. Morelli, are they affected? Because presumably Absolutely, those are yeah. parts which are made and the team will have enough for the whole season at the start of the season. So that shouldn't Well, be... no, no, they won't have enough for the whole season at the start of the season. They'll have enough for the first phase of the season. These are parts that are actively in development. Ah. So these are parts that are R&D parts. So they won't have a whole season supply because the design and specification, particularly for Morelli, some of the electronic components, some of the fuel system components, they're changed through the season. They're updated consistently. So teams have the option either to change supplier, which is a big change for some of those parts, or you know they tend to bring new parts with new power units. So when the second group of power units come in, they may have to change their supplier. And I know, I know Renault used uh, Morelli parts. I know Ferrari used Morelli parts. So there is a bit of a question. Will they have to switch to Bosch parts or another supplier? Morelli are uncertain because everything's fine for the opening part of the season. They have those parts. They, they'll have to do remote technical support over you know, the internet and stuff like that. But it's going to be very difficult to predict how that's going to develop. More of a problem are Ferrari and Alfa Tori. Now, the teams are out in Australia at the moment. They're going to be able to race fine. But after Melbourne, what do they do? The staff can't come back to Italy. No. So it's a case of where they take the team, the team equipment, the cars, after after the, after Melbourne is finished. Now, the, the suggestion is they obviously take them all directly to Bahrain, and mm-hmm. then they can operate out of the facility in Bahrain. After Bahrain, and then they have to think about, well, do they go direct to Vietnam? Well, probably they do, but if any of the cars sustain damage, need spare parts, need major rebuilds, if they write a chassis off, you know, they won't be able to get a spare out of Italy. And on top of that, will they be able to send out the spare parts from the factories? The chances are probably not. So it may be that the guys in the factory are going to have to email uh, another supplier, possibly in Austria, possibly in the UK, to ship to manufacture those parts for Ferrari and ship them to the track independently of Ferrari. It's going to be a very, and Alfa Torre, it's going to be a very tricky balance for them. Alfa Torre perhaps have it slightly easier in that they can go through Red Bull technology to get parts made. But Ferrari don't have that external supply chain because their external supply chain is usually companies like Michelotto, yes. who are based in Italy. So a lot of Ferrari suppliers... And even you if you look problem. at the big companies that you'd think, oh, they'd be able to do that, you're looking at people like Delara, who are also in Italy. 
Exactly. So, and Delara, of course, supply and do a lot of the, the majority of the manufacturing for the Haas team. Yeah. So, and Haas, all of Haas's aerodynamic work is done in Italy as well. So, they too will struggle to get those updates done because what we don't know, um, and I think the the Italians are still trying to figure out at the moment, is with this one meter separation rule and workplaces shutting down and people being told to work from home, how many of their staff can actually go and work in those offices, go and do that R and D? And I, I, it's going to be interesting to see how much disruption there is in Italy. But this situation isn't over. The UK government is currently coming under huge criticism for not taking enough action in the UK. Now, either the British government is playing a blinder or they're going to be seen as hugely negligent because if the UK has the massive upsurge in, uh, in virus cases that we've seen in Italy, and it's distinctly possible that we will here, then the UK itself could be put into quarantine and that creates the problem for the rest of the grid and most of the other suppliers. So we could be looking at losing a bunch more races, I think. Well, that brings us on to the calendar, Nick. And uh, obviously not the 22 races that uh, we were expecting and which everyone was complaining about uh, with <laughs> the loss of China. But we do have two new races, Vietnam and uh, the Netherlands. Uh, so let's talk about Vietnam first. Yes, I mean, I think that's a good point because we don't know. The calendar, no one knows what's going to survive, what's going to go, as Sam says. But we do have, as you say, theoretically two new races back. Well, they are back to back now, aren't they? Uh, initially, in the beginning of April, we were going to go to Vietnam for a street circuit round the roads of Hanoi. Um, and yeah, it's one of those things where you think, you know, it was only less than 50 years ago there was a, a war being fought between the Vietnamese and the Americans, and uh, now the American-owned F1 circus is being welcomed and paid for to turn up in in Hanoi. So it's good to see international relations are made better by sport. What do you think of the circuit? Well, it's very hard to say because it's one of these kind of semi-permanent, sorry, sorry, semi-impermanent tracks. You know, it's it's, uh, it's basically a street circuit with some bits with some new bits made specially for uh, for racing and a permanent. I think it's, I think it's a permanent pit complex, isn't it? Yes. Um, and you know, and it's very hard to tell from pictures. It looks nice. It might, you know, yeah, we need to see a few a few laps in it going round. I suppose it's most like, uh, you know, a bit like a more open Singapore, really. But of course, we run during the day. So, but yeah, I mean, I think it, I hope I really hope it gets underway because it looks really interesting and of course it's absolutely on on message with what um liberty want to do which have more street races in capital cities around the world and uh in major cities around the world around the world uh and obviously that's why in holland they aren't going around the streets of the hague and are in fact using an existing circuit at zandvoort well, they are very close to Amsterdam, though, aren't they? Um, yeah, 25 minutes on the train. Also isn't the capital. Yeah, I mean, the, the, the Zandvoort thing, yeah, what's happened is that Max Verstappen has turned up and has energised a country that actually was already very key on F1 without a driver. And they've got absolutely, well, all the words which have words which you can't say, crazy about the whole situation. The Sea of Orange, the Orangemen, it's fabulous to see. They have their new hero, and now, on the back of that fact, they know they can sell the tickets. Was it, did they get... 12 times over subscriber tickets, something ridiculous. Um, they are going to Zanvor. Zanvor, a track which, in its original format, which stopped, they stopped racing at many years ago, was actually quite good. Unfortunately, in the intervening period, they built houses on half the circuit, and they're now working with a very tight bit of track, which really is a little bit limiting for GT3 cars. So they've redesigned it uh, and put some banked corners on in an attempt to keep the speeds up and enable overtaking. I think it's going to be spectacular for qualifying 
I don't think it's going to race well. Certainly not this year. Perhaps with the 2021 regulations, we're overtaking it easier. We'll don't know. But it's going to be a spectacle, a spectacle in orange. And great, great to have it on board. And I think it's uh, it's good, always good to get a new European venue because, of course, there's been a gradual drift out of Europe as the uh, the money from governments has come in, um, overtaking the money from you know just from from audiences. And we are, of course, this year without a German Grand Prix, and that looks like a that may not come back for another many years again. So uh, we've at least managed not to lose a, a overall count of European races with the new Dutch race. So let's look at the teams, uh, and we're going to do this more or less alphabetically i think so the logical place to start is uh, alfa romeo racing ferrari uh and uh, sam collins will come to you first tell me about this car the car itself is quite a continuation of what we saw in 2019 and that concept is the one that goes back to Jörg Zander and the former Audi Sport aerodynamic team who came over from the LMP1 project to Formula 1. Came up with a very tricky, very complicated aerodynamic concept and car concept that it took a long time to get to work but when it did work it worked really well. In 2020, they've just really continued that with a lot of this very extreme cooling solution, very different approach to everybody else on the grid. In testing, though, it did kind of look like they'd forgotten the bit of making it work. It did look like an absolute handful to drive. Um, it, it just didn't look quite as together as you might have expected for a team that really does need to fight for its uh, Alfa Romeo funding, I think, going forwards. Nothing revolutionary. I mean, obviously, they can't do anything revolutionary, uh, given that the rules are very much unchanged. Yeah, we're not going to hear much about revolutionary concepts um, in this show. So, uh, sorry about that. No, it's it's a real evolution. I mean, that is the the order of 2020 Formula One. Everything pretty much, with a couple of notable exceptions, is a big evolution. And uh, the Alfa Romeo is, is an exact answer, is an exact example of that. Uh, let's take a look at the drivers at uh, Alfa Romeo then. Uh, yes. And it's Kimi Raikkonen and Antonio Giovinazzi. Yes. I, I'm not going to let Sam talk about either of these drivers <laughs> uh, because I fear what he might say. Uh, mm. But you're a massive fan of Antonio Giovinazzi, aren't you? No. No. I no, in reality, I mean, you know, Antonio Giovinazzi is, um, uh, well, better than Nicholas Latifi and possibly better than Lance Stroll, don't know, hasn't really shown anything, but was you know, the, the last name on the list of the Ferrari Driver Academy who had enough super license points to get in. And, and you know, he is was not spectacular last year. He tended to throw away his good results. He fell off the track while he was about to score points in Spa, for example. Completely didn't set the world on fire. Better in the second half of the season, in fairness to him. So, you know, there is there is potential there. Perhaps a continued upswing might help Giovinazzi. But realistically, um, no one else is going to sign him. And his chance of getting another year will probably depend on whether uh, Raikkonen decides to stay on. Because um, obviously he's about 74 now. Um, Giovinazzi uh, did have a... Uh, a reputation for either winning or crashing in his junior career. Um, he's not yeah, winning he's, anymore. Yeah, he's dropped the winning now. <laughs> um, no, and he, he, he has thrown it off a few times. I, I think, you know, he's just, just not looked... He hasn't looked... You know, anyone in F1 is a great driver. He's just not looked particularly special. And you, 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 on top of your head, you can think there's several better people for that drive and they're queuing up already. I mean, he's not... Yeah, you, know, you should be 
or be more much closer to to Raikkonen every week because you know Raikkonen's obviously over the hill. I mean, obviously traditionally this this review was my annual rant against Kelly Raikkonen, wasn't it? Um, but in fairness to to him, he was quite useful for Alfa Romeo last year and you know, clocking up some important points at the beginning of the season and and, and scoring when needed and, and providing them with a, with a good benchmark. Um, which I'm sure he'll do again this year. I'm sure he'll score some points if the cars are able to do it and provide them a good bench up. Um, all the fans will think he's great. All the press will think he's awful. And um, the big question will be whether that's it, whether he signs for another couple of years. I, you know, I, 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 it, really, it will depend, I suppose, on what Alfa Romeo Sauber or whatever they're called think they need from their from the driver. Do they want to, or whether they think they can find a better solid pair of hands. It's a bit more dynamic, you know. I mean, he does hard. have a very good contract which is he can walk away whenever he likes or he can stay for as long as he likes and still have a drive i mean that is the ideal situation for someone like Kimi Raikkonen, isn't it yeah they're not they're not making him do anything he doesn't want to do um you know he lives right near the track so um factory he, the tracks are in 21 different oh, locations. Very, very good point. It's really the factory. Yes, I've just been, my brain is always is addled during this excitement. I've got so many things to say about so many other teams. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, I, I, I'm no longer wasting my energy. Now he's not in one of the plum seats. He's fine knocking about at the back. Not an issue. <laughs> On to our next team alphabetically. And that would be uh, the team that used to be called Scuderia Toro Rosso and is now called Scuderia Alpha Tauri. Uh, now, apart from the name change, uh, I wonder what else has changed. Uh, if you have been looking at uh, social media, uh, you might have uh, thought we were going to be talking to Franz Toast uh, in this show. That's not correct. Uh, but here is uh, Jody e- Eggington, who is the... Uh, remind me, Sam, he's the Chief Technical Officer? Something like that, Technical Director. Well, first key point is the regulations are fairly stable this year, so that's enabled us to evolve some certain things which were quite successful on the previous year's car, but at the same time we've made some changes to the concept aerodynamically, we've explored some different avenues, made some decisions to take the development in a different direction, and they're the fundamental changes of this car, and some of the results of those experiments in the aerodynamics department have been quite positive and we believe we've addressed some of the performance weaknesses of the previous car with these changing concepts so aero development's been all important and uh, appears to be quite positive and quite fruitful so far there's that word evolve again yeah what they've evolved the Alpha Tori, as we must call them, which is a, a brand of very expensive jumpers, as far as I can tell, mm. owned by Red Bull. Yeah. Um, it, what I can gather from the car is it is it's not quite a copy of last year's Red Bull, but it's extremely heavily influenced by it and follows that same concept, and it uses almost all of last year's Red Bull's suspension internal and external it uses its uprights it uses its brakes it uses uh the same gearbox as last year's red bull obviously they're it's using this year's honda power unit which i'll talk about probably when we get to the red bull actually because there's some nice things to talk about on that power unit and then it's using just a general overview and a car concept from last year's red bull it's been 
it's clearly the work of Alpha Tori engineers, not the work of Red Bull racing engineers. But let's not forget that both of the designs of those cars are owned by Red Bull technology and not the individual teams, which means they can, there is possibly a bit of information exchange going on. And this is a team that, again, is pushing the limits of what's allowed in Formula One, but I think is staying just the right side of it. You can see quite a number of technical differences between the Alpha Tori and last year's Red Bull. Interestingly, in testing, the car looked to be driving really quite nicely, but the lap times definitely were not there, and I, I'm still a little bit at sea on that. However, there was a lot of work going on from the Honda side, so I think we, we it may have been the performance of that car may be a little bit masked, and I will talk a little bit more about the Honda power unit when we get to Red Bull Racing. Okay, let's move on to the drivers uh, for the Alpha Tauri. Uh, they're going to start this season with the two that they ended last season with. Let's hear first from uh, Daniel Kriat. So, of course, uh, we have uh, had quite a few changes in the team uh, name, of course, delivery. Uh, technically, of course, uh, we have uh, an evolution from the last year's car, and uh, we hope that we did a good uh, homework over the winter and we managed to improve things even more and hopefully it will be a strong challenger for a strong uh, races. And he'll be joined by Pierre Gasly. It's the first time for me in my single career, um, single-seater career that I'm doing more than a year with the same people and the same team so uh, it feels a bit more stable um, of course I'm I'm gonna work with the same engineers around me and just makes things a lot um, a lot smoother so in the winter break I could really focus on myself to improve uh, physically mentally I'm really focusing on the areas um, I need to improve and um, yeah it just feels nice to see the same faces same mechanics same engineers uh, for the the first time in my career all about consistency for uh, Gasly then, Nick Damon. Uh, yeah, I mean, I think uh, uh, Pierre Gasly, who, you know, if anyone's had the chance of watching Drive to Survive on, on Netflix, would probably now like him a lot more. Poor lad seemed very hard done by at his time with Red Bull Racing. But, you know, the whole Alpha Tori Red Bull talent uh, pool is, is, is amazing. If you look at the drivers they've currently got, it's more comebacks than Frank Sinatra and uh, Elvis combined, isn't it? You, 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 it's like the uh, Hotel California you can check out, but you can never leave. Um, I think realistically, it, it, you know, getting you aside from the, you know, the, the obvious shortcomings of their, their, their driver junior program, Gassi deserved this second chance, uh, you know, getting the very much the thin end of the stick at Red Bull last year when the car was difficult to drive and he wasn't very well supported. And when he went back to... Um, well, it wasn't Alfa Torre, then was it? It was, it was uh, um, Toro Rosso. He put in a good last four or five races of the season. So I think, you know, he probably deserves to try and rebuild his career and then try and get a, a step up somewhere else because it's pretty unlikely he'll ever get promoted back to the main team again. Uh, Danny Kvyat, well, you know, he's doing well. He's making up the numbers. He's, he's solid. But, you know, he's not a driver who should be in the team if they had a functioning junior program. Um, I expect him to be not as good as Gasly. If the car's okay, he'll he'll trundle the thing into the back end of the points, but that's about it, Tim. Lots of positivity from Nick Damon there. Yes. Uh, Sam, he's wrong. He's wrong. Of course he's wrong. Already. He's already wrong. I'm not wrong. There is a reason that the Russian is in that. Yes, you are. The, 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 the reason the Russian is in the car is that when the young drivers come up out of the Red Bull program, drop into the the Alpha Toro, they have Alpha Toro as a team have a reliable sort of he, he's a level he's a constant 
So if they're better than the Russian... Yeah, benchmark, that's the word I'm looking for. So if they're better than Kvyat, then you know they know that he's that driver perhaps is probably good enough to jump up to the senior team like Albon did. But can't you Whereas, just do that um, in the simulator, Sam? Just have Kvyat no, sitting doing simulator testing and anyone who's better in the simulator... Nah. No. I think, I think that's the very best positive. Driver, uh, the best driver at Red Bull Racing has never been in the car. Yeah, that's true. It's a very, very positive no, spin. No, no, no. They also sell a lot of Red Bull in Russia. I don't think Red Bull Alpha Tori, they sell some trousers there next year as well, but I don't think that's, that's how you run a team. The reason is they haven't got anyone better to replace him with, and the people who are better, they just won't choose because they will, aren't part of the, uh, the Red Bull program, and it was admittance of failure. I, there are 20 drivers in various sports who are more capable than Danny Kvyat of providing a baseline measure of that to what we want, several of whom have already been fired by Red Bull and are doing well in other series, like, let's see, oh, Jean-Eric Verne, uh, Sebastian Buemi, you know, probably Jamie Algaswar if he wasn't just DJing in the, in the Maldives these days. Honestly, it's a, it's a failed program. This is nothing against, against Kvyat, but he was sacked for Hartley, then reinstalled after Hartley went again. It's like, no, that's not how you run a team. It's you know, the the, the, the the musings and madness of Dr. Helmut Marco has brought them ca- crisis after crisis and is the reason they'll have a problem ever running a, 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 the main team, I know we're on the main team, but have a problem the main team ever run a, a proper constructors' championship bid because they never have two decent drivers. When they did, they frightened one away by over-favouring Verstappen. I, I don't agree with that because if Verstappen, you know, by mishap or Ferrari contracts, disappears out of the Red Bull fold, you know, there's drivers that they've got on their books, like Nick Cassidy, who massively needs to run out in that F1 car. Nick Cassidy uh, going nowhere near an F1 car, Sam. He's got a super. He's got the super license points. He's got the contacts. There's a, he's, he's clearly good enough. You've got Naoki Yamamoto in the wings as well, who Honda is desperate to get into. A no, race that's car. more likely. Yes, Sam. But Cassidy is quicker than Yamamoto. Well, we're on this, Sam. Uh, Christian Horner did say a few weeks ago that if Verstappen hadn't re-signed, they, then Red Bull would probably have given up. Yeah, but that's, oh, that's just Christian Horner talking nonsense. I know, but it's, it's indicative of the way they're thinking. They'd even say that in an interview. It's, the problem is they're, they're, they're weird. They're not a one-man team. They're now one-man two teams. It's ridiculous. I, I, I don't think that's the case. I think if Verstappen had gone, they would have carried on. They'd have just found another. You know, Albon is a super talent. You know, and he yeah, and actually, I'm, I'm going to stick my neck out winning team. I'm going to stick can't. my neck out here. Albon is going to be the highest scoring Red Bull driver of the year. I'll give you any money you like on that one. Oh, I'll have yeah, the Rolex, okay. the whole lot on that. Okay, I'll, I'll, I'll if bet you honestly you think that, if you ro- honestly think that Albon is going to score more, the only way Verstappen would not score more points than Albon is for a reason none of us would want to happen. No, 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 no. I think, I think. Who spun more in testing? It was Verstappen, not Albon. Verstappen's just going to make silly mistakes and cost himself points, I think. But anyway, we're on to, we're on AlphaTauri. Yeah, we'll, we'll come back to uh, proper Red Bull later on, because uh, next uh, alphabetically is Ferrari. Uh, full name: Scuderia Ferrari Mission Win Now. <laughs> <laughs> well, do you want, if you want me to talk, talk about, about the, the car. Effort, the SF1000 Mission Win Now, it looks a bit of a bleak prospect, doesn't it? In testing, it was pretty clear that the car wasn't as quick or responding the way the team wanted it to be. Ferrari set out this season to build a car that was better in the corners 
at the sacrificing its straight line performance. That's what they claim. I think it may be that perhaps some of the uh, crackdown from the FIA on some of their systems may have lost them some engine performance. But they've certainly lost out on the straight line speeds. But the car does not seem to be working particularly well in the corners. In the second pre-season test, they bought a new rear wing. And it just seemed to make the car, while quicker, a little bit undrivable. And we saw the drivers making more and more mistakes. And it was sliding around all over the place in the final sector at Barcelona. And I, I don't know. The Ferrari, by their own admission, say they're behind Mercedes. Well, that's obvious. But... Just how far back are they? Are they behind Red Bull? Are they behind Racing Point and Renault? Are they behind McLaren? This looks like it's going to be a really bad season opener for Ferrari. And not just because of the coronavirus situation that we talked about, or because the car's not good. Mattia Binotto's job is on the line, I think, with this car. And on top of that, Sebastian Vettel, he may be ending his career if this car's not a good one. So you're saying that this car is basically the opposite of the Alpha Tauri in that it's potentially very fast, but it's got so little stability that you can't actually do a full lap in it. It's got that look to it. I mean, the lap times when they're strung together look pretty decent. However, there were so few solid laps strung together. And when you're watching the cars through the corner, it just did not look nice to drive. I think they've got big problems at Ferrari and with the situation in Italy at the moment, whether they'll be able to bring the updates to the car to make it work properly in those opening races is really questionable, and I think they're in trouble. Uh, Nick, let's talk about the drivers, same as last I'd like, year. I'd like to ask a question to Sam first. He glossed right over the key points about Ferrari. Is Ferrari's drop in performance just due to um, the fact they're having to run a bit less oil burn, or were they cheating last year? Well, I, I don't know that they were. Well, they were running well, and everybody was. But, um, but you have to pretend less this year. It, the, 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 the alleged cheating, shall we call it, wasn't mm. necessarily down to oil burning. There was no, the fuel was, stuff yeah, as well. Yeah, gaining, gaining the fuel sensor. But gee, I think that eventually, whilst they'll never be convicted in the court of law, the circumstantial evidence and the court of public opinion, which is far more important these days, um, you know, oh, look, we'll, we'll bring out a directive. Oh, Ferrari is slower. We'll bring out another directive. Oh, Ferrari is slower. We'll investigate them, but let them off. Oh, look, Ferrari are way slower now they're running free legal. You know, I mean, the fact, uh, you, know you, you can't find 40 horsepower six years into a fixed engine formula. Well, it is possible to do that, and it has happened in the past. However, when, as you when, lay it when, out, as you when, lay it out Nick, when is it ever happening? Renault did it in the V10 era. And I know exactly the person who did it, and I know they did it all in one day in one tweak. Um, very very it, different investment in those days. Absolutely. But when you look at the Ferrari situation, and exactly as you laid out, Nick, it's very suspicious, isn't it? Uh, yeah. I just, I just said it interesting because you obviously are. I am technically um, guessing you are technically knowledgeable, so that's fine. Uh, to answer Tim's question about the drivers. Um, you know, it's interesting the point that Sam made about Sebastian Vettel is maybe his career-ending car. He's already making noises himself that whilst this may be his last year at Ferrari, it's not necessarily his last year. So he's already looking at the chance of going somewhere else and, and carrying on driving perhaps in a less pressured environment. Um, you know, the car is the issue. How bad is it or how good is it? I think you, know, you would say how bad is it, as, as Sam says, is, is a key point. It didn't. They didn't really do the thing you'd expect them to do, which is get the Italian press off their back by actually putting in a couple of fast laps. Um, but obviously the Italian press has been distracted by other things. That's worked out for the best. Um, Leclerc, you know, obviously starts the season as unwritten team leader, and unless he's crashed out of the championship by his teammate, 
uh, he will slowly pull away from Sebastian Vettel, who, unless he's had a completely mental reset, has is effectively just becoming more and more of a spent force every year. And effectively, really, ever since he was beaten by Ricardo in 2014, has never looked the same driver. Flashes are brilliant, absolutely, but not in any way able to string together. Well, was he, wasn't he making a major error every three races last, for the last two years? And, and that's not a driver you can have at Ferrari. But Ferrari have... Yeah, have got so many problems, not least the suspicion of the paddock, not least the fact the car isn't really working, and they've got you know, a potential civil war with the drivers and outside pressure, which is nobody's fault, from um, you know international health scares. Is- well, I mean, you mentioned the international health scares, Nick. I mean, Sebastian Vettel missed the first two days of the pre-season test because he had flu-like symptoms. <laughs> well, that's good, though. If he's had it, he's immune. That means he can carry on. Well, we don't know. It doesn't. We don't know that it has immunity because that that hasn't been worked out yet. But nonetheless, it, Vettel did not look like a happy little German when uh, at the test at all. And are people who know him, people who are closer to him than I am, certainly, and I've barely spoken to the man, um, suggest that he won't resign for another team in Formula One. He might just leave Formula One altogether. Now, it'd be, I was just thinking, just as you were saying that, Nick, it just, just as an interesting, and there's no indication that this would happen, but perhaps if Vettel decided to miss a race or was feeling unwell again for one of these races, wouldn't it be interesting to see what Kimi Raikkonen could do in that car? Well, he just do what he always does. He just trundles around and finish fourth or third. Well, unless, or, you know. unless it's by rain, then he wins. But if what Sam's saying about the car is true, finishing fourth might be the best result of the year for Ferrari. Well, yeah. Well, so I, I was helping there, and I say that I was assuming that two of the other top three cars broke down. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, you don't know. I mean, there is an element of sandbagging, and there is the the ability they have to to develop. They have the get out, and they've already pinged the concept of the get out that they might just say, "Oh, this one's not worked. Abandon it early and concentrate on next year," and and then try and get their head down and try and deflect all the short-term criticism by saying no we, we, we realize we made a mistake we've the, the concept yeah we've, we've, we've written off 2020 but 2020 will be amazing tm uh and they'll carry on like that you know because That's... they've got so many other problems to avoid they can even blame the coronavirus if they want to and say it, it's it ruined our early development so my guess is if the car is slow over the first three races they will just junk it and not bother how much pressure is binotto under nick it's a really good question. I mean, there's been, you know, there has been an awful lot of hiring and firing within Ferrari, and and whilst this apparently works quite well in the Premier League, it doesn't. I don't think it works quite so well uh, in Formula One. We're having a long-term team principle, and if you look at the rest of the teams now, you know, you've you've had Toto Wolff for what, nine years, you've eight years, you've had Christian Horner ever since he stopped doing nude photo spreads in in GQ magazine. Yeah, you've had they've they've all been around for a very long time, and that then that stability actually helps the team to grow. And when you have a, a fast turnover of, of technical people, as happened for for a while in, in at McLaren, as we went with the Whitmarsh back to to um, uh, Roll, and then off to to Eric Boulier, it often spells a period of disaster. Not not but you know, what's cause and what's effect of the of the sacking of the, of the manager. Sam, anything to add? Well, I agree with Nick actually, which is rare. But yeah, Sorry pretty much that. everything he said was, was spot on. I think that's exa- if I was in Ferrari's uh, shoes, Binotto's shoes, I would put the I put my armor on and prepare for a very difficult year and put everything into 2021. Uh, let's move on to the other Ferrari team now, and that's Haas F1 uh, with Roman Grosjean and Kevin Magnussen. Let's talk about the drivers first, Nick. Yeah, it was in, again, I, I do recommend people get 
Netflix and watch Drive to Survive because there was an again the, the Hass uh, implosion over the first half of the season last year was shown in, in great detail and and what appeared to be at the end yeah you know, halfway through but I still think an unworkable relationship between the team the drivers and more importantly the car and the drivers um, they. Seemed at that point over the, the summer break to to decide to have a non-blame culture. Realise it was the car. Decide the drivers weren't the problem. Resigned them both, and then spent testing. It appeared going deliberately, not very quickly, to make sure they didn't have the same aero problem, which was particularly um, prevalent as the weather uh, got warmer and the had, uh, therefore they had airflow separation. So the drivers really got a free pass for some continued stupidity between the pair of them hitting each other, and some some and do what they do normally, which is some. Every now and again, one or the other pulls out a fantastic qualifying or a fantastic race. The qualifying fantastics tend to be more Magnussen. The fantastic races tend to be more Grosjean. But, yeah, they, they couldn't get the car to run with the tyres. So they just went backwards in every race. They've got another year. Realistically, this has to say it's a make-or-break season for them. And it's certainly a make-or-break season for the two drivers. Uh, Sam, this car looks like it's going to be at the back of the grid every week, doesn't it? I'm worried about Haas on this one. Uh, it, because I think it's because partly down to Ferrari's issues, the Haas is not looking at all competitive. And there's been some very clear noises coming from Gene Haas that if the this year's car, if the team isn't that competitive, and you can see him very clear on this in Drive to Survive, that which is absolutely fantastic. Nick's right on that. It's, it's, it's really worth watching. Um, that you know he might just call it a day and shut the doors on the team. I don't think Gene Haas will do that, but I think we could be in a scenario where Haas, as the NASCAR team, struggled really badly when it started out a little bit and then got investment from Tony Stewart and his partners became Stewart Haas and then became the winning team that we know today. And I could see that Gene Haas might be looking around for an investor into that team to go forwards and, well, Gene Haas does have a very close relationship with Ford, so that could be an interesting one. Um, otherwise, there could be other investors looking to get into Formula One at the moment because it is a good time for teams to enter Formula One with the cost cap coming and actually the 2021 regulations looking like that the field will be a lot more evenly spread. Ford's so not coming this, back to Formula One, though, is it? Isn't it? Why would it? Why wouldn't it? Because it's got no money. Well, car manufacturers generally haven't got any money at the moment. But Formula One is a lot... In, in terms of the cost of Formula One, the cost of Formula One is going to be drastically lower in 2021 than it has been in recent years. Will Ford come back? I don't know. I'm, I'm speculating there, absolutely. This is speculation after all. But I would think that a new partner for Haas could rejuvenate the team. Or perhaps it needs to make some changes in its technical leadership. I don't mean Gunter Steiner, but we saw the the absolute level of anger from Gunter Steiner towards Ayo Kamatsu, the technical director, or the, the guy who does a lot of the technical work. But Rob Taylor seems to be putting together a decent car, but are Haas pushing hard enough to be at the front, or are they just trundling along happy with what they got? And that might be a problem with the Haas model overall. We're getting so many parts from Ferrari and being led by Ferrari. However, if Ferrari build a great car for 2021, that will help Haas out no end. Uh, Nick Damon, uh, I seem to remember about 10 years ago, they said Formula 1 is going to get a lot cheaper and uh, we got a load of new teams. <laughs> How did that go? 
went brilliantly. Uh, Max Mosey's amazing $40 million F1 scam in two, sorry, idea in 2010. And all the teams had disappeared, I think, by 2014. Or was it 15, the last one went? Um, and in, in, the, in the intervening time, they made a number of very rich people very poor. And unfortunately, made a number of uh, subsidiary supply companies in the carbon fiber triangle very bereft of payment. So not a great one. However, the discount price is 178 million. It's going to be now as the cap, not including the drivers, not including your marketing and not including your three most expensive other employees. So realistically, the cap is around 270 million dollars um, compared to what was supposed to be 40 million dollars back in 10 years ago so that's inflation for you isn't it so you think that's a more workable cap and it might actually last well it's certainly more workable given the fact that only it's thought that only three of the teams are actually spending more than that anyway um so the the, the big three teams um they will you know have a they will they will flobble down but the thing to remember causes the engine is a completely separate side again so mercedes is spending many hundreds of millions also on the engine but you know it's still great as we've discussed on the on the movie motorsport it's, it's great value because of the, the pull through of marketing but yeah i mean it obviously makes it easier i think that i think the problem the reason it does make it easy even though the numbers are astronomical is you do know at the end of the day how much you're if you want to win you actually at last know how much you've got to spend because previously there was no limit. Now you know, well, if I have $250 million, I know it's a ridiculous amount of money. Theoretically, I won't be with one hand behind my back cash-wise. Those, of course, we know there's a number of other reasons why works teams always rise to the top. And there's, a, there's another point to this. It's not just the cost cap. The new technical regulations are so, so restrictive that it's going to be quite difficult to build a bad car. The teams are going to be able to build decent cars in, if they stick just by sticking to the rule book. It does mean that they're all going to basically look the same, and there's not going to be this huge differentiation in design. So that will help teams at least get into the ballpark. To get to the front, it's going to be really, really small marginal gains, and they're very, very expensive. So it's going to be interesting to see how that plays out. So I think, think you'll still see the works teams at the front, but for a team like Haas which probably has access to quite a lot of those marginal gains from Ferrari, they could be right up the front under the new regulations. Where does Gene Haas find someone with a quarter of a billion dollars? Gene Haas is quite good at finding money. There's plenty of rich Americans out there who, 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 are, who, are, you know, who could well think it was worth their while uh, investing, especially if the second uh, US Grand Prix ends up happening, wherever uh, it may be. Recently it's been rich Canadians, though. Yeah, I know that must that must really rankle the rich Americans. I'm sure be a be a North be a North America battle going on. Who could own the most of F1? Uh, that's great, isn't it? Let's move <laughs> on to our next team, and that is McLaren F1 team, Ooh. powered by Renault. Uh, they have uh, the same drivers as last year. And this is getting boring to say. There's very little driver change going on this year. Uh, Lando Norris, Carlos Sainz. Yes. The standout surprise pairing of the year last year, we had uh, Carlos Sainz finally proving to everyone what I think a lot of people suspected way back in his Red Bull days, sorry, his his Toro Rosso days, because people forget he wasn't really, he was certainly not outclassed, and it was only marginally he was beaten by... um, uh, by by Max Verstappen, and very much it was, it was it, that um, his father wasn't as pushy as Max's father. So Jos kind of beat Carlos Senior in the get my team my my boy in the main team stakes. Uh, a couple of wilderness years wandering around teams came back, established himself with some fantastic racing performances. Landau Norris came in with a little bit of a 
shadow over him after a stellar junior career because he hadn't really performed as we expected in F2, but just picked up and went, uh, did the usual thing, just got quicker during the year as rookies are and looked particularly good in qualifying. Not quite aggressive enough in the races yet, but that's something I think, again, not based on an inability to overtake, but more a natural, it's my first year conservative, didn't want to get over the line. And while science kind of was the overall winner of the battle in year one. You kind of feel Norris coming back stronger for a second year is going to give the Spaniard a run for his money. Whereabouts they're running in this run for the money um, is going to depend on what Sam says in the car. Because I found this one quite difficult to, to work out because were they just doing their own program or were they not quite as quick as I thought they were going to be? Sam? I was looking at the car a lot during testing. And now this is one of, this is probably one of the only teams on the grid that's made a major car concept change year on year. But then they have a completely new technical team. You've got James Key there now. You've got Andreas Seidel. They really introduced a new, some new interesting features to that car. Watching it out on track through Sector 3 at Barcelona, which is one of the best places to watch racing cars anywhere in the world to see, understand how they're working, you, it, the car looks like it's working, it's handling, it does what the drivers want, it looks drivable, it looks competent. It just didn't look as fast as some of the others, so I couldn't quite work out what was going on with the McLaren. I think because it's a new project, a new direction, a one-year-only project, you might see that they'll struggle earlier in the season, places like Melbourne, some of the trickier tracks we start off the season with. Uh, but once we get back to Barcelona in mid-May or late May, I think you'll see that car coming particularly good and it'll update quite neatly. And I think you'll see them moving to the front of the midfield. Could they cause an upset later in the year? Potentially, if something happens to those front-running cars. McLaren could be just close enough to pounce. But then a lot of that is down to the Renault power unit. Renault does seem to have taken a step forward this year with its power unit. It seems to have got over the woes of 2019, because 2019 was not a good year in terms of power unit for Renault. I just wonder if they're... It's a very hard car to quantify, that one. Lando was saying it handled really well. Well, it looked like it did absolutely looked like it handled really well the drivers seemed it seemed to do everything the drivers asked of it it just didn't seem fast so it could be that they were just running their own program Renault had their modes turned down so it doesn't really make sense to do that so it's as I say it's just very very hard to, it looks like a good car it really does uh, Nick could they have been uh, sandbagging to the extent that they no, look slower I, I, I than they are I, I think the point that Sam made is, I, don't, I know we're agreeing far too much at the moment. We have some row about the bigger teams. I think he makes the fact that, yeah, it's a good point he's made about it being a brand new concept rather than a revision of last year. So obviously there's a lot more work to do. There's a lot more baselining to do. So there's a lot more of the unglamorous medium tyre 20 lap runs you need to do um, to work out what's going on. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's a big year. It's a big year for the drivers. Both the drivers are out of contract. Both got and and both the drivers, if they put in good performances, could raise the the attention of teams who are looking potentially to find, uh, especially Ferrari, who may be looking to find a top line successor. And let's be honest about this: Ferrari are not going to employ Antonio Giovinazzi, and they're not going to employ Kimi Raikkonen again. So they'll be looking elsewhere. So it could be a direct. It could be a bun fight. It could be Daniel Ricciardo versus Carlos Sainz and Landon Norris for the Ferrari seat. There, you heard it here first. Uh, let's move on to uh, the team that's going to win the championship: uh, Mercedes AMG Petronas Formula One. <laughs> yep. Uh, 
What's this car like, uh, Sam? Another one that's going to drive off into the sunset, leaving everyone in its wake? Yes. <laughs> and why is that? It's just really well engineered. I mean, fundamentally, Mercedes have just built a really, really good racing car. They've carried on their same concept that they've gone off on their own for quite a long time. The long wheelbase, low rear ride height, so low rake car. The only real conceptual change that we've seen with this car is they've finally gone away from the old-fashioned style side pods where you have the side impact structure where it's meant to be, low down and sitting in the sort of normal position, whereas they've gone over to the Ferrari-introduced short side pod concept with these weird-looking, you know, the side impact structure sits in a funny place and it's got these little tiny narrow ducts. They've clearly optimised the cooling system even more, so it's a super tight rear end, as they always do, get tighter and tighter. Centerline cooling as much as they did last year. Um, And then, of course, we've got this uh, push-me-pull-me steering system, which I think is probably to do with managing tyre temperatures um, through a stint rather than giving you a particular get benefit in turning, but there's differences of opinion in the up and down the pit lane about what that DAS system, dual axis steering, actually does, and also how much of a gain really is. It, it's not going to be this big silver bullet, but it's just another little bit of it's just another weapon in the already large Mercedes arsenal. It's looking like a world beater, but it does have an Achilles heel. In testing, the car was notably unreliable, particularly in the power unit department. The bits that come from Bricksworth in England did not look as well bolted together as previous. The performance is certainly there, but even James Allison admitted that the car has... They, they're really worried about its reliability. So that is perhaps the only glimmer of uh, hope in what looks to be another year of Silver Arrow's domination. Explain briefly how DAS works. Um, the driver. <laughs> Go on, yeah, let's see Nick's ideas first. Well, my, it's, it's quite simple. Basically, there's a, 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 a pull-in and pull-out element to the steering wheel, uh, which is connected by clever linkages, which therefore affects the toe. And the toe is the angle at which the wheels point, because actually racing car wheels do not point straight ahead the front wheels. They actually point slightly outwards, called toe-out. And the, by activating the, uh, the DAS, you can then either produce into neutral or toe-in, which has various handling traits, but doesn't affect the hand down the straight. If someone said they were going to go from toe-out to flat to get more top speed, but that wouldn't get any top speed, because your top speed is entirely governed by your drag and your horsepower. And the amount of drag caused by a tiny bit of rolling resistance is virtually negligible. It might get point one of a mile now. But as, um, as Sam says, by actually by changing the, the toe, you actually change the part of the tyre that's actually sitting on the road going down the, uh, the, the, the straight front bit, and that changes the, the heat um, dissipation across the tyre, and therefore you don't work the inner edge as much, and therefore you have a much more even tyre wear and you get more life. And theoretically, you could get more turning or even just get more even turning. So that's, it's really, as I completely agree with Sam, it's all about tyre temperature management. Is this a movable aerodynamic device, Sam? <laughs> yeah, so the favourite rule of Formula One, ban anything interesting under being a movable aerodynamic device. Well, the wheels are in the wind, and by adjusting them, they move, you know, toe in, toe out. You're adjusting what's affecting in what's in the wind so arguably yes it is but by making that same argument you ban steering systems because whenever you steer the front wheels you you, you adjust those angles anyway so to ban it as a movable aerodynamic device you are then banning steering from the cars 
And just as an interesting aside, there is nothing in the technical regulations that say a Formula One car must be steered by the steering wheel. That's changed for next season. Mm. I, I mean, I think also it was a very interesting situation that if it was providing a massive advantage, then they would have hidden it for an extra week and not used it as the second week of testing. It went out on the second day of testing where they knew everyone would see it from the onboard cameras. And it was basically a statement of intent. And it, whatever benefit it may have to the car, it's had an even bigger benefit of playing with the minds of the opposition. You've stopped, well, think thinking, exactly stopped thinking about their car for several hours and just thought about what on earth this is and how do we miss it. Or in Ferrari's case, saying, no, no, we thought of it. Yeah, we thought of it before. Just thought, no, didn't we? no, we didn't. No, yeah. And everyone going, oh, gee, you really haven't learned the concept of truth, have you, Ferrari? Uh, and just moved on from there. But it's, it's a very clever, it was very clever politics launching at that it, point. It, Absolutely brilliant, exactly that. Because what Ferrari, what, what, what Mercedes have done is they've sent Ferrari and Red Bull and everybody else up and down the pit lane, scurrying off back to the factory to spend an awful lot of time working out how to design this, how to engineer it. I mean, the linkages in the front of the car must be really, really interesting and complex. And they've got these guys who've gone off to all these engineers squirreling around trying to make that work. And if it brings Ferrari half a tenth, a tenth of a second, sorry, it brings Mercedes half a tenth of a second, well, great. But the advantage they get for later in the season in 2021 by sending all of these engineers from rival teams off, wasting their time, to, loads of man hours to get a tenth of a second late in the year and possibly requiring a new monocoque to do it. Yeah, it's brilliant, brilliant to introduce it so early in the testing. And so obviously, and I am pretty certain the person who picked up on it on the TV was tipped off about it. Oh, yeah. Right. Yeah, I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure that that particular... Um, man whose name is the same as a well-known spring water was told what was going on yes <laughs> and the one thing i would say to say though do you not feel that actually mercedes are lucky they've had so much unreliability because if you get one item go wrong once you can you can overlook it and think oh it was you know it was a, a one-off installation problem because they've had several things going wrong they they know what they have to sort out and, and therefore in many ways you actually want to have the same the same item fail three times or twice then you know what you're trying to fix the problem with Mercedes is it wasn't the same thing failing. It was multiple things failing. So was, they it, not, had, was it not oil pressure quite a lot of the time? They had, the oil, they, had, they had an oil system problem that manifested itself on one of the cars. They had a related oil system problem that manifested itself on another car. Nothing manifested itself on the Williams, possibly because it wasn't going fast enough to break anything. Um, but I, there were other issues in there as well. So they have got a headache and a bit of a head scratcher to sort out before Melbourne and whether they're going to be able to do it in time for the first engine in the race pool because the gap between the end of the second test and the the engines being shipped to Melbourne was very short. And whether they've had time to send those first engines out with a fix on is unclear. And if it may be one of those situations that those first engines in the race pool have a glitch in them the team is going to be really, really worried about the life of those engines. Yeah, I mean, therefore they want more, more races to get postponed or cancelled. Well, absolutely. Just reduce the load. Yes. <laughs> uh, let's take a look at the drivers then. We have the uh, 2008 Formula One world champion and we have the 2008 Formula Renault Euro Cup champion mm-hmm. reunited yep. once more. Yeah, uh, you know, what, I don't know what to say about Lewis Hamilton really because it, it's all been said. He is marching towards becoming statistically the greatest driver of all time and then down to your own personal preference whether he is the greatest driver of all time. Um, 
every year he comes back he seems to get stronger and better he's, he's maturing he, as a you know in, in all ways and it, it does seem just he keeps getting better he knows when to go fast he knows when to overtake what not, not to overtake he has all the race craft he's a fantastic qualifier um he gets in the heads of his teammates he gets in, you know he it, you, you you struggle certainly since nico rosberg left the team and the team became his um you struggle to find a single weakness and, and outside of a weekend when he was feeling desperately ill and slid off on when everyone else was sliding off in germany you got a driver who doesn't make any mistakes either when the chips are down. You know, when he hit Albon in Brazil, he'd already won the world championship. He's having a bit of a laugh. And, and, and you think, well, what is, what is going to stop him? Perhaps it's the unreliability, but you think he can probably overcome that. It's not going to be Valtteri Bottas 3.0, because Valtteri, marvellous though he is as a, as a very slow racing driver, can't string together the 20 or 19 or 21 races he'll need to in a row he'll put in some great performances at certain tracks and then he'll be disappearing and and, and lewis will eke away again as lewis did last year it's it's it must be quite soul destroying for for bottas obviously he can he can console himself with his cash and his new girlfriend but you sit there going you're not going to beat hamilton hamilton the only person who beat who you there was only one person who could beat hamilton and that was hamilton himself and he stopped doing that yes uh, that's as much as uh, I think we want from Sam on uh, drivers. Uh, the Racing Point BWT Mercedes. Yes, this 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 should all be about Sam because now Sam can tell us everything about oh, last yes. Mercedes again. <laughs> well, I mean, Nick Nick jokes, but I mean, we are talking about something that is perhaps one of the most controversial cars I've seen in the last couple of decades, at least. Now, Racing Point, the team formerly known as Jordan Force India. Midland, Spiker, MF1, various other things, now known as Racing Points after being purchased by Canadian billionaire Lawrence Stroll, and next year to be known as Aston Martin Racing. However, this year it is Racing Point. Last year's Racing Point car was simply an evolution of the 2018 car, and that became uncompetitive towards the end of the year. So the team had to come up with a completely new car concept for one year only for 2020. So the engineers all went back to the workshop in Silverstone, sat down, and got a lot of pictures of last year's Mercedes and, quite frankly, copied them. The Racing Point RP20 is a direct copy of the 2019 Mercedes W10. So this goes back to our conversation earlier about brake ducts, doesn't it, Sam? Absolutely does, yeah. They've and seen now, something that works and thought, I'll design something that looks like that and it'll work. That's my design. But it's not a case of an inspired, like we talked about Alpha Tori a little bit earlier, that the design of the Alpha Tori is heavily, very heavily inspired by last year's Red Bull, but it's clearly a different car. The Racing Point RP20 is a straight copy of last year's Mercedes. Now, this raises an absolutely enormous... Well, the re, before I do that, go into that one. It, the reason they've done this is because the Racing Point uses last year's Mercedes gearbox, uses some rear suspension parts. It uses the same power unit as this year's Mercedes, but it's interchangeable. So there's a lot of similarity. So it makes sense for them to have done it. Uh, what Racing Point was struggling with is they were in the past, they've tried to build a Red Bull style car with a high rear ride height, high rake car. 
using Mercedes parts that are designed for the a low rate car, and it was a bit of a battle. So for this year, they decided, well, let's just copy the car that won last year and copy it entirely. I mean, you'd put photographs, and someone on Twitter's done it. You put the photographs of the two cars head on side by side, and other than the paint jobs, they're almost indistinguishable from one another. But this raises a really, really interesting point, and one I think is probably going to get tested in the courts at some point this year, because the Formula One regulations say a team, to be a constructor, a team must own the intellectual property of its design. Now, while the Racing Point team did not take the CAD files and the drawings from Mercedes and literally build their own version of it, what they've done is they've copied it using photography, using all, you know, film footage and the really detailed photos that that the teams have of the individual bits of each car and absolutely worked out what each bit is, what the measurements are and just could done a complete straight copy. It's a copy and paste car, which some people are now calling the tracing point. And um, the, what that question raises... Now, if you look at your mobile phone in your pocket or, or whatever electronic device you're, you're listening to, if I copied that, if I was Mr. Nokia and I decided to go and copy a, an Apple iMagic phone or a Samsung, whatever, and did an exact copy of it, well, that company would then be entitled to take legal action against me because I've copied their design. And actually, that copy would be so, would essentially, the IP on that copy would be owned by the originator of the design. That's the way these design rules work. That's the way the law on IP works. What makes the Racing Point situation a little bit interesting is Mercedes don't care that Racing Point have copied their design because... Mercedes sell them millions of pounds worth of kit each year, old kit that they don't need anymore, basically. So Mercedes think it's absolutely fine, and they're happy for Racing Point to copy their homework. However, could they start race- selling them things like moulds and things to go into autoclaves? No, that would be against the regulations. Right. Strict. So they couldn't sell them the moulds because that would be selling listed parts. They can't do that. Um, though there is a rumour that one team did try and buy last year's Ferrari to copy and Ferrari refused it because they'd already sold the car to a collector. Um, but they couldn't sell them the moulds to go into the autoclaves, but they can sell them everything else and they can't sell them the drawings and stuff like that. So it is a copy. But the fact that it's a copy raises the argument that if it's such a tight copy to the Mercedes, more than 70% is a critical re- wording, and I'll come back to that in a minute. If it's more than 70% the same, then the IP can be considered to be owned by Mercedes. Now, if a rival team, McLaren, Haas, whoever, decided to protest the fact that Racing Point does not own the IP to its own design because of that being more than 70% identical, then Racing Point is in a very difficult situation because if they don't own that IP, it means their car isn't legal for the 2020. Formula One World Championship, and they would have to revert to last year's car, which you can do because they're so similar in, in regulations, but they'd be deeply uncompetitive and at the back of, back of the field for every single race. However, the 2020 racing point, the RP20, in testing, looks to be extraordinarily fast because it's a copy of last year's Mercedes with this year's power unit in. So, yeah, it's going to be quick at the start of the season. Now, the reason I call on that 70% 
identical regulation takes us all the way back to a high court judgment in london in 1978 between a racing team called shadow and a racing team called arrows now due to the original or the way the arrows team built its first car the arrows a1 it was found to be an exact copy of that year's shadow shadow protested in the courts it was found that the arrows was more than 70 percent identical to the shadow and was deemed to the ip was owned by the, the arrows design was actually owned by shadow therefore shadow couldn't compete in formula one with that car and they and arrows had to redesign a com- completely new car the arrows fa1 i believe it was called and that situation could really come screaming back into formula one in 2020 and we could see the racing point rp20 outlawed on that basis if a team decides to take it legal in that direction so at what point is another team going to protest because if they do it too early then uh force injury will uh, sorry racing point will just go back to last year's car with different front wing or something like that and uh still be pretty fast with this new mercedes engine so they need to wait a long way into the season to no, make the protest. No, I think that's what I'm the car, the, the previous car is uncompetitive. It's, it's aerodynamically uncompetitive. So it, it would go from being battling for third and a half to fourth back to, you know, probably at best bringing, bringing up the rear with the Williams or being off the back of it. It's, you know, it's an uncompetitive Where, where did machine. last year's uh, Racing Point finish in the Constructors' Seventh, Championship? Seventh or eighth? Yeah. Yeah, it faded really badly in the second half of the season because it was really a year-old car that had been yeah. bought. Because we, you're really bringing I mean, a 2018 car to 2020. I mean, I, 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 I do hear what Sam's saying, but I just feel that if it's... I don't believe that you... If the company who's who supposedly has their intellectual property infringed isn't bothered, um, then what's the issue? More importantly, they can sell the intellectual property of the car to, to Racing Point if they want no, to for can't. a pound. You can't. I thought you could do that. Wasn't that what well, was going on when we had the whole Super Aguri world of, of pain? That's right. Years That's exactly right. So it, it, there was this situation with Super Aguri and also Toro Rosso where they could sell the IP of a previous design for a pound. Now, the issue there is Super Aguri got away with it because the team that they were basing their original car on, the Arrows, wasn't in Formula 1 anymore. So it's not another competitor's product. That's actually stated in the regulations. Ah, if there is another competitor in the sport that the design has that IP that did the work, they cannot then sell that design on. So, And that was deliberately to stop Toro Rosso and later Super Aguri using the Honda designs and the Red Bull designs. So that's been specifically outlawed. So if it's coming from another Formula 1 competitor, you cannot use listed parts, they're called. So the monocoque, the bodywork, and the front impact structure from another team. Now, the front impact structure of the Racing Point is probably different enough to that of the Mercedes to get through because they won't have been able to copy those laminates exactly. And the monocoque's probably slightly different in in similar areas as well. But it's the bodywork is the key part. So you don't need to think about the whole design. It's just that bodywork that is a listed part. And if the bodywork is more than 70% identical and it can be argued by a rival team that it is, then it doesn't matter that Mercedes don't care that their work's been copied. They, it could be argued that Racing Point didn't have the IP. Now, I don't think the FIA has the jurisdiction to rule on that. So it would almost certainly have to go to the UK High Court. And then it'll go the then it, whoever loses will take it to the court of sport for arbitration in uh, 
in Switzerland. It'll get sorted out about 2026. No, it would go straight for once it's de- determined in the High Court. If the UK High Court finds that the IP of that car or that bodywork is owned by the competitive team, owned by Mercedes, then there isn't an argument in the sport. They, they can't appeal it. Okay. You know, they that is a that is a UK legal decision. The sport arbitration sport is a lesser court, so they can't overrule that decision. So the team would simply, I think in reality what might happen is the team wouldn't be allowed to accumulate constructors' points or wouldn't get its prize money or some fiddle like that. Let's look at the drivers, uh, Lance Stroll and Sergio Perez. Yes, well what you've got there is you've got the world's most consistent midfield runner who will get you the points you can get and occasionally get you a couple more but is not ever going to become... Um, uh, under the radar, in the radar of the top three teams, in Sergio Perez, who is, you know, a very, very solid driver, a, an excellent man to have in a team like Racing Point. He does what he says in the tin. He's a sort of a slightly younger Kimi Raikkonen. Well, you know, will yeah, will always produce. Doesn't you know, very, 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 very rarely has an off day. Gets what he can get. Can do everything solidly. And then you've got the boss's son uh, as the other driver. Um, now Lance Stroll is not as bad as many pay drivers. I've, but I've said this before, I don't think Lance Stroll is particularly suited to F1. I think he's actually quite a good driver, hence the reason he's an F3 champion. The problem is, one of the key elements in F1, if not in many places, the absolute key thing is you have to be able to qualify. It's, it's more important in F1 than, than I think any other uh, branch of motor racing. You have to be able to qualify well. If you don't qualify well, you're, not, you're, you're putting one arm, one leg, and one of your eyes behind your back. And Lance Stroll is un indubitably the worst qualifier in f1 there is no one who's as bad at qualifying in f1 as lance stroll but in 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 contrast when it comes to first laps and racing lance stroll's very very good he's a good little racer as he's shown by his performances in the wet but with f1 being so qualifying centric i've always said lance stroll should be in sports cars where it doesn't matter that you can't qualify because you've got six hours to sort it out or 24 hours sorted out and i don't see any signs that with his career so developed, Lance Charles is going to improve that issue. So whilst he may end up going slightly up the grid this year because the car's better, he'll still always be three or four positions behind where he should be, and he'll end up three or four positions behind where he, would, where he should be. And if we're honest, there will be a point, possibly when they become the Aston Martin works team, or perhaps in the second year, when just being the boss's son isn't going to be enough, and, and uh, Daddy Stroll may have to make a very, very difficult decision. Nah. <laughs> Daddy Stroll ain't going to make that decision. Daddy Stroll wants his son in an Aston Martin. Daddy Stroll bought into Aston Martin for that reason. Yeah, but at some point, when you're Aston Martin, you're beholden to a, a other shareholders, um, and, you know, and, and you're representing your brand. You, you need to have. You can't have again. You can't have this one arm behind your back because it's, it's nice side of situation. You can't have. You know, you've got to have two drivers who can produce. I mean, I say I think Lance is a good driver, just in the wrong formula. No, I don't disagree. I think I think what you might see is, um, you know, Daddy Stroll will see out Lance's next two, three, four years in Formula One, and then decide that maybe he's going to be better deployed in uh, a racetrack in France in the new Aston Martin LMDH probably change the rules again by then yeah, I think I'd like to fire him at the end of this year but I'd be surprised if he lasts long in Aston Martin because I, I, I just don't I don't see any reason why suddenly he's going to work out qualifying which he's not worked out for the last what three seasons and it's, no you know, it's, but you have to remember Aston Martin's purpose in I think in Formula 1 is not to win, win the world championship it's to sell Aston Martins which is probably harder 
we've got three teams to go. Uh, and the next one is uh, Aston Martin. Uh, <laughs> well, Red Bull Racing. Yes. Well, uh, just, call them, just call them what they are. Max Verstappen Racing. Max Verstappen Racing with Alexander Albon. Shall we hear from uh, uh, these two drivers, uh, Max and Alex? The target, I think, for the whole team is we want to fight for the championship um, and do better than last year and be there from, from the first race onwards because that's uh, already where you have to start to perform. And I think, yeah, we are on a good way. The team was, is very motivated, worked very hard over the winter as well, so I just can't wait to get started. Throughout the first season, we improved the engine a lot, um, step by step. You know, Honda gave us the updates, and um, yeah, it was a good, good starting point for, for this year. And um, yeah, we just tried to keep on working, tried to keep improving the engine, but it's already on a, on a good base. We just need to... Uh, you know, nail the last few details. The winter break's been pretty good. Um, just chilling out, training. I think that's the main thing. And doing a lot of simulator, developing the car for this year, getting the team, telling them what direction I think we need to go. And Max is very much on board with that. I think we both had the same ideas of, of what we need. So, um, yeah, it's just been relaxing and soaking it all in last year. It was quite hectic. So, yeah, having a clear mind and goals for, for, for 2020. I think the car's... Showed a lot of promise on the sim. Feels really good. So uh, not putting the goals, not putting, let's say, set targets, but I know what I want to work on. And I know working on them things, um, of course, short run pace would be one of them. And, and there, there are a few other things in there. So uh, just working at it one by one, um, that will give me a result at the end of the year. I'm just looking forward to get started. And hopefully we'll be competitive from the start. And then I think it can be a, a really interesting and fun year. I'm looking forward to um, just mixing it up, mixing it up with the top boys. That's that's what I'm here for, and um, having some good battles. Um, and yeah, I'm uh, getting uh, getting excited already. So Max Verstappen going for a title charge. Alex Albon not setting himself any targets. He just wants to be there. Well, in fairness, just being at the end of the year is probably a major achievement in, in Red Bull, isn't it these days? Um, yeah, I mean it's 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 uh, ever imponderable. You know, Red Bull are wedded to the concept that Max Verstappen is the best driver that we have seen for many years, 10, 15 years. And if they can provide him with the equipment, he will, or even close to the equipment, he will romp to a world championship. Um, they very much decide they want to have a, a number two driver in, well, actually not even all, but name a number two driver. They want, but they need one who can score more points than Pierre Gasly was able to with the difficult car beginning of last season. So they picked up Alexander Albon, and you know Alex is a is a great guy and a good, a good peddler, and theoretically he should be able to bring the car uh, home one position or two positions behind Max, which is 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 two car at the start with Ferrari not being involved, and he may well be able to get a whole plethora of fourth places, and therefore give them a chance be in the world championship but the problem that, that red bull have is is not actually is is i think mostly down to their sense of entitlement that they should that they and max should be running for the world championship and what they don't seem to realize is that they are fighting against a unbelievably good team and yes they've picked up wins but they've been scrappy wins here or there and what they aren't able to do is put together a 21 or 20 race where we get left again season and Verstappen still is completely untried with any pressure on him. He's, he's, he's run his entire career where he's always looked quick. He does look talented. But when's he ever had any pressure on him? He's always been with a team who's told him they can't win the World Championship. Go out and enjoy yourself and take a win when you can. And even then he's managed to make some monumental mistakes, you know, including the ridiculous situation he 
caught himself by not lifting in Mexico last year. In, in, he should have won that race, but blew it in qualifying, got a, a, a grid penalty. He still crashes into people rather too often. He's still far too aggressive in overtaking. And the point about all oh, defending more, and, that's, and if he's going for a world championship, those sort of minor errors are going to bite him on the backside. Does he have the maturity to run the championship? I don't think he does. Will they produce a car that's good enough? Probably not. Will he become? Will he possibly be Valtteri Bottas and come second? Fifty-fifty. Let's hear from uh, the team boss Christian Horner. It's the start of a new season. It's always exciting at the beginning of a new year to see the car hit the track for the first time. Well, we had a great debut season with Honda, and the partnership has only got stronger and stronger. And it's been a really positive winter. The effort that's gone in behind the scenes has been truly impressive. And uh, uh, I think you know further steps have been made on the power unit front and on the chassis side so uh and the, the the integration of the power unit fully into the car now uh is really a, a work of art well, i think the most exciting thing about the 2020 season is it really does feel like the grid has been you know uh concertinaing and should be getting closer and closer and i think that uh, it's going to be a long hard tough season but hopefully we can put a really strong challenge together this year christian horner saying Absolutely nothing there, Sam. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I, one thing I'd like to say, just I'm going to start. I'm, I'm going to start with um, the just a driver point. Now I completely agree with what Nick said about Max Verstappen, um, but what I'd like to add is Alexander Albon. You heard what he said in the little interview there, and just I'm happy to be here and getting on, doing my job. And you saw that in Drive to Survive. He's just he's genuinely happy to be doing his job. He doesn't actually have a lot of pressure on him because people expect Max to do all the winning and all the front running. Albon will just quietly get on with it. And I think Albon is, even though he's very inexperienced, will because of his personality, because of his background, he will quietly get on with it. He'll start picking up points. And at the end of the year, he's going to be the one that's going to, if either of them are going to be in the shout of a world championship, title tilt and it'll be, it'll be a bit like Heinz Harold Frentzen in 1999 that nobody will realise quite how he managed to do that but moving on to the car itself now it looks it's as usual for Red Bull as usual for an Adrian Newey influenced car it's beautifully engineered it's well designed but it's very marginal in a couple of areas I mean they really pushed it out what the car can do on track and it did look in sector 3 at Barcelona very very difficult to drive and we saw both of the Red Bull drivers having unforced spins uh, Max Verstappen having rather a lot more than Alex Albon I should note um, and it just looked it looked quick but hard to drive really hard to drive on the limit but that wasn't the most remarkable thing about the car the most remarkable thing about the Red Bull and to an extent the Alfa Toro to the same extent the Alfa Toro was the noise coming out of the back of it this doesn't sound like a Formula One car. It sounds like an old 1980s rally car. And I'm just going to pause now so you can all listen at home to what it sounds like. Wrong noise.
So that's uh, the sound of the uh, Red Bull that uh, Red Bull have supplied to us. Is that what you want to hear, uh, Sam? Yeah, they've sent you a sanitised version, I think. The driving out of the garage is much of a muchness, as you heard at the beginning. Yeah. But the the deceleration into the corner with the snap, crackle and pop, I think they've turned down the sound on it. There's there's a better video on YouTube, actually, which really makes it clear of the enormous volume of crackling, popping and banging out the back of that Honda. So when you hear that sound, it's a little bit of a of, a, of an interesting sound because Formula One cars shouldn't have that very obvious anti-lag sound because of the fuel flow regulations that's not really the way anti-lag in formula one works they've got the mguh to do a lot of that work so quite what honda is doing in the, from the combustion chamber back to the end of that exhaust pipe i'm not entirely sure but they're doing something entirely different to everybody else but on top of that in testing if the wind was in the right direction when the car was really popping and banging and spitting you could smell it you could smell the Honda engine. The only engine in Formula One you can smell, it's the Honda. It has a very, almost tropical, almost sort of very sweet... Pineapple and coconut. It's almost, yeah. Oh, yeah. It, 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 it doesn't smell like you'd expect conventional racing petrol to smell like. It, there's, it, it has a certain chemically sweet chemical smell about it that is quite intoxicating, actually, and very nice. Um, I have to bottle it and sell it in airports and stuff, but it, it's a really, really not interesting sure car. Through security, possibly not, but it, it's it's a very interesting thing because it's got this strange sound and it's got this strange smell. So our Honda running incredibly rich on fuel doesn't make a lot of sense again with fuel flow limit, or are they doing something different that nobody else has worked out yet? I asked Honda about it. They All they would do was, yes, accepted that there was something different about what they were doing. And between the two, the Alpha Tori and the, and the Red Bull, that you could see at different times their car in different modes. And sometimes it sounded like a normal Formula One. One of them sounded like a normal Formula One car and there was no smell. And then the Alpha Tori would turn it up and it would snap, crackle and pop. And then the Red Bull would turn it down. And they never both ran the same mode at the same time. But there was an awful lot of stuff going on with the Honda engine, and Honda engine in particular, I don't mean the whole power unit, the engine in particular, there was something going on there. Honda have essentially hinted that they've made a breakthrough. I have doubts. I asked whether the two cars were running the same fuel through testing. The answer I was given is that they will run the same fuel in Melbourne, which in itself suggests that there was something else going on. And there is a big mystery about what is going on in the back in the back of that Red Bull and the back of the Alpha Tori. But Honda are up to something, and they seem very, very happy with their work. So, you think it's something fuel-based rather than something physical in the engine? Well, I think it might be a bit of both because when you change the fuel in Formula One, you would typically change something in the combustion chamber. You might change something on the turbocharger. Now, with a strange smell and the strange noise, that really limits you from the combustion chamber out of the exhaust valve, down the tail part, you know, down yeah. into the, into the to the turbocharger and out out the back. And because the Honda has a split turbo, it's only half the turbocharger that that exhaust gas goes through. Now, to get the smell and the extra sounds. It sounds like there's unburnt fuel near, you know, near the turbine. Now it would it that 
unburnt fuel. Having unburnt fuel doesn't make a lot of sense within the regulations. So quite what it is they're up to. Are they using unburnt fuel like a tra- traditional anti lag to spin up the turbine and get more power through? Why don't you just use the MGUH for that? So I think there's a whole load more that we there's a bigger picture we've not seen or worked out yet. But Honda are up to something, and I really want you to play a clip of that sound because it is amazing. There's not a lot uh, you can do within the regulations with fuel, though, is there? Well, there is a lot. Fuel is a really big um, playground for the engineers. Um, you know, fuel is a major co- development component in Formula One. Yes, the regulations are in theory. Some people say, oh, the Formula One regulations say pump fuel. Well, that doesn't mean like in Super GT or Super Formula that your fuel must literally come out of the pump in the in the paddock. Pump fuel is a set of specifications. So the fuel in Formula One will meet the EU standard for the fuel you put into your road car. But the fuel you put in your road car is like, every, you know, it, it, it's a vague approximation of a, that meets a specification. The Formula One fuel is a precision. It's absolutely perfect fuel. So it's specifically engineered for each engine. And it's not quite got to the level of being engineered for each driver because the regulations don't allow you that many varieties anymore. But it is, you know, the Honda fuel is designed specifically for the Step 1 Honda RA620H hybrid engine, a hybrid power unit. And when they bring in the next, you know, Step 2 engine during the season, they will introduce a new fuel to go with that specific engine. So there's a huge amount of fuel tuning going on. There is a bit of a question who actually supplies Honda's fuels. Um, it's got Mobile One written on the side of the car. Yeah, I've heard rumours that maybe it's not Mobile One in the in, in the barrels, but that is just a rumour and I've got nothing no evidence to prove that. Uh, they've just signed an uh, extension to their contract with ExxonMobil. Um, it's, it's been with the team since they switched to Honda. Um, obviously, when they had the Renault engines, it was Total fuel that they were using. So um, this is either SO or Mobile branded fuel. Um, but as you say, it could be coming from anywhere. Well, I mean, Halterman Carlos doesn't have a big international retail brand, so that's possibly why they don't want to talk about that. Nick? I, yeah, I, I think it comes down to the, the, the whole point about um, Red Bull, and I think you know, the, the, what we're talking about, is ever since 2013, they felt they had the right to be at the front and never backed it up with either chassis or engine at various different times. Their sense of entitlement has held them back, and now they and they try to pretend they're the little team that made good when they spend more money than anyone else. And you know, I think no one, there's very few people have outside Holland or the Netherlands, shall I say, or and Thailand, who have a soft spot for Red Bull. I think they've they've, they've managed to kind of strip away most of the goodwill towards them, which is an odd thing for a company that's built entirely around marketing. Is Max Verstappen the Messiah? We'll find out. He's just a very naughty boy. <laughs> Certainly as far as the stewards are concerned. Uh, any more to say on Red Bull or shall we move on? No. Let's uh, move on. Okay, let's move on. And uh, next uh, team alphabetically is the team known as Renault. This is the Renault <laughs> Formula One team. They've got the most simple name uh, in any uh, format. There's no right. okay. There's extras no on it at all. It is just Renault. Uh, and here is a man with the more complicated name, Cyril Abitaboul. 
Well, 2020 obviously comes after 2019, which was not a great year for us. So we are approaching 2020 with a bit of a different mindset. We need to set ourselves some uh, realistic and uh, moderate targets, but we need to stick to them and we need to deliver. Uh, we think that it's uh, realistic to target P4 to the constructor championship. Uh, if uh, we, we stick to the plan, uh, both in terms of variability, in terms of performance development, and also in terms of execution at the track. 2020 is obviously a bit of a pivotal year. It's, it's the end of a cycle, the start of a new one. Uh, we all know that uh, domination in the sport or success in the sports needs to be built, needs to be anticipated. Uh, very often also on the occasion of change of, of cycle, so it's typically one of these occasions. We need to factor that into our plan. Uh, the way we approach this is that we want to develop massively at the season start, make sure that we have uh, uh, the right competitiveness level to hit our target and then shift massively as early as we dare uh, to 2021 when we, when we need to, uh, to finally break that, uh, that uh, selling glass. Well, Pat Fry as technical director and Dirk De Beer as new head of Aero are uh, the two uh, latest adds to, to the team and change to the team. But, you know, it's changes coming after many other changes, many other people. We had also a new engineering director, a new program management. Lots of things have happened. You know, it's been a year of change in Enstone. We have focused in the previous year in building the infrastructure, in ramping up in terms of quantity. Now we need to make sure that uh, all of the skills that we have, all the talent that we have under this very clear and reinforced uh, leadership will, uh, will deliver. That's what we will uh, obviously uh, be looking to, to see in action this year. So the key thing there is he's talking about uh, Pat Fry uh, at, uh, coming to Renault and uh, Dirk De Beer as the head of Aero. Um, but it does sound as if Renault have already written off 2020 and are looking at 2021, Sam. Uh, well, it does a little bit. Now, I'm going to start with a rumour, because I like those. There is a rumour that... The Renault Monocoque failed its uh, impact test at the Cranfield Impact Centre uh, in the lead up to the 2020 season and pre-season testing. Now, I asked uh, Martin Bukowski about this, and he didn't give a direct answer. But what I can tell you is that the Renault RS20, as we are advertised as the 2020 car actually is, mm -hmm. is no such thing at all. It is a Renault RS19. Yep, that's last year's car. Renault are racing last year's car, certainly at the start of this season, with a lot of modification, completely new bodywork package on, and lots of bits and new pieces of bits and bobs bolted onto it, and obviously the new power unit. But that is last year's car that Renault are racing, under a new name and trying to pretend it's a new car, but it's not. It's last year's car. And that, in some ways, will give them a real advantage at the start of the season because it just it's one less thing to worry about. It's a RS19B, if you like, so they should come out of the box pretty competitive. And we did see in testing, the car does seem to work really, really well. And if you look in, you have to look a little bit, delve a bit into the data, and look in very a lot of detail. The Renault is actually very quick as well. It's a strong car with good drivers. I think they could cause a bit of an, an upset early in the season and pick up a, a haul of points early on. However, by that approach of using an old car modified does mean that, like the racing point, they're going to struggle to 
develop that concept through the season. And I think you'll see that Renault may be one of the first teams to switch their attention to 2021. Uh, let's take uh, a listen to uh, the drivers, uh, starting with uh, Daniel Ricciardo. Where do I start? I, I, learned, uh, I learned a lot, obviously a lot about myself, you know, trying to integrate within a new team and try to be, uh, I guess, a team leader in, in some respects and um, try to quickly earn people's trust and, and encouragement, you know, so building relationships with the people around me, particularly the engineering group, you know, that was, that was cool and I learned how to gel with them the best way, I think. And I think more than anything, it's spending time with them. Um, but yeah, we had some highs, you know, and I, I learned that the team, you know, enjoys emotion and runs off emotion. You know, when we have a high, it's, it's really felt amongst the whole team. And when you have a low, you also feel it. But um, I felt like we were quickly able to re-rally, uh, reset and, and rally ourselves together in, in those, those moments. So yeah, a broad, a broad range of understandings. So I'm firstly excited, excited to get my second year under my belt with the team uh, or to get it kick-started, but uh, excited, yeah, for what I've seen, what I've talked about with the engineers and, and the, the technical department, um, simulator already doing some, some laps and, and feeling the car a little bit differently. So, um, yeah, I mean, every, every year a driver's excited to drive the new car, but, you know, I feel us at Renault, we've got a good amount of room to grow and I'm excited to see how we can uh, infiltrate that for this year. Something I, I learned last year as well, you know, teamwork. And I, when I got to Renault, I looked at the facilities and, and the facilities are great. And, you know, it's not like we're lacking much at all in terms of that compared to the big teams. So that's where teamwork comes in. And it's about using each member of the team in the most efficient way, you know, and it's, it's not about having you know, the smartest guy in all of F1 in your team. It's not about one individual, it's about everyone coming together. And, you know, I, I saw last year, as the year went on, you know, belief grew in the team, I think, but that also needs to be reinstated. You know, as, as, as a person, you know, you, you forget things over time naturally. It's like a human instinct. So as far as like a team spirit and team morale, you know, you have to keep reiterating and, and reinserting this into, into the team and the atmosphere. So. It's something I'm working on as well, and I want to try and keep, keep that flowing in a better way this year to, to get the most out of everyone. So I'm confident we're going to put some things in place over the next few months and are interested to see how they progress and, and how it helps us as a unit become closer. I am, you know, a new teammate's always exciting as well. You know, you, it's a chance to learn. It's a chance to, it's another way of competing, you know, against someone new and um, and measuring yourself, you know, so with, with Nico, I, I just got last year, but it was still, you know, enough time for me to, to yeah, work with him, which, which I enjoyed. And, and now with Esteban, I think he's going to bring a new dynamic, a lot younger, very hungry. You know, he's missed, missed the sport for a season, um, still early in his career. So I think that dynamic's going to be cool between us. And yes, you're going to see, you know, a lot of competition and um, I'm sure we'll, we'll keep it, we'll keep it, um, you know, to a, to a necessary level to keep the team uh, from stressing too much. But, uh, but absolutely, you're going to see, uh, you know, good competition. And uh, I think more than anything, I hope and I, I'm sure we'll have some good respect and push this team further forward and, and hopefully in, inside that top four in the constructors. I, th I learned last year that 
being aggressive is good and you know racing with intent is is good but i also have to manage that sometimes and be smart you know and pick pick my battles pick my moments so yeah i i, I want to be better at that but um yeah i mean for sure that i i really still believe there's a podium there with with renault um you know when i signed this initial two-year contract uh, i saw a podium you know in in, in that signing if, if you know what i mean so that's that's really as far as a position goes that would be a personal objective for me um something i think is, is attainable um and as a team for sure improve and 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 take the fight to obviously the front guys is our target but take the fight back from that midfield and and take that fourth place and he'll be joined by, as he mentioned, Esteban Ocon, a French driver at a French team. I'm very, very proud to be to be racing for, for Renault as a French driver. Um, definitely a, a dream coming true, uh, that is. Uh, it's uh, um, one of those seats that uh, I wanted to have for a very long time, been growing up in, in, uh, in Enstone, um, you know, to, to see all those drivers you know racing with those uh, yellow cars it's um, definitely uh, something very special for me to be here now i think just humble targets you know uh, to start with just uh, gonna be there just catching up trying to learn as much as i can from daniel in testing and then see where we are uh, at the first race it's it's one of those years where um, you know we have to perform we have to do better than uh, than we did last year uh, i think for fourth place going to be the target um, and we want to get closer to the top three teams as well. Um, but yeah, let's uh, take it step by step, uh, put it on track in Barcelona and see where we are. You have to perform better than last year, says Esteban Ocon. Uh, Nick? Yeah, uh, well, I mean, let's, let's talk about... It's about three people in the team show. We'll start by talking about the two drivers. Uh, Danny Ricciardo was... Uh, made with the the surprising decision many thought to leave Red Bull but he probably realised that there was no point being there it was Max's team and he took a large amount of money from Renault who turned out to be worse than he expected last year he's now in a situation where he has the second year of his contract and he needs to put himself in the shop window for any potential opportunities Ferrari that turn up with the big teams um, or a chance to re-sign another big money contract and just see out his career so he's got a, a lot of things to prove not necessarily any of them being a long-term loyalty to Renault. Um, Esteban Ocon, after a year off, has found himself in the absolute dream seat because <laughs> uh, he really wouldn't want to be partnering uh, uh, Lewis Hamilton. He'd much rather be driving for Renault um, as they trundle around with last year's car, as Sam said, uh, in a, an attempt to get fourth, where they'll be trying to bat off the might of Racing Point and then uh, going through the season. Um, McLaren. And... You know, good luck to Esteban. Yeah, he's a good little driver. Hopefully he won't hit um, Daniel as often as he hit Sergio Perez. And good luck to Daniel. Daniel's a nice guy. And, you know, well done getting the paycheck. And let's see where he can go next year. The problem, to me, with Renault is Cyril Abitable, who I have no confidence in. And, and, and contradicting myself about changing managers, as we did a, an hour ago, I believe he's the one who should be changed. He appears to have achieved nothing except excuses and, and reshuffles. Um, I don't understand, apart from being French, what he brings to the team, how he helps anybody, what great ability he has. He managed to fall out with Christian Horner. He managed, you know, I know they were difficult, but I, I'm, 
struggle. All the other team managers, I can see, you know, the good side and why they're there. Even, you know, Christian Horner's, you know, I can see what he's doing. I can see what uh, Gunther Steiner's doing. Uh, you know, even, even perhaps with Leslie St. Claire Williams, I can see what she's doing, which is being related to the boss. I don't understand why Cyril Beatable is in his job still, because he has effectively been a train of failure for as long as he's been in it. Sam, Cyril? I quite like him. Not the point. Um, go back to the that interview we had with him. He he started off by saying 2020 follows 2019. Well, that's pretty obvious. Well, at least he didn't get it wrong. <laughs> I, I I think I think it's, it's it's fair to say that the Renault team, for the investment that the French company has put into it, has badly underperformed in the last sort of 12, 24 months. Um, they're not going to turn it around this year. I mean, they're going to improve, maybe get that long-awaited podium. But I, I really do think that the the real renaissance for the for the Parisian English team is going to be 2021. And if that doesn't work, then well, they might as well pack up and go home. I, I, I just think I just think the management structures. Uh, I don't understand. I, I, I've never understood what Cyril's bringing to the team. Um, they need something, you know far more dynamic they've got the cash which is the key thing they're a works team they can build their their car around their engine perfectly packaged as, as can mercedes but they got beaten by a, a mclaren who were coming off of the worst year ever um there ever, ever uh, who showed you how to produce a car on a comeback trail i just don't i don't i mean i tell you what i'm going to predict right now they won't be the best renault team well i think you're absolutely right they're, they're, they're clearly not the best renault team um and they don't have the best Renault. They don't have the best 2020 Renault-powered design because they don't have a 2020 design. They've got an old car, and that is absolutely clear indication that they've thrown all of their eggs in the 2021 basket. So I think 2020 is a year to endure. But with the approach they've taken, they might get some good results early on. But the second half of the season is going to be le pentul. Cyril said before that. Uh he wouldn't leave until the team won a race. Then he will well, be there be on... forever. He'll never leave. That's, that's <laughs> going to be a grand mal de tête for the, uh, for the Renault team. I can see it now. We're doing, we'll be doing this preview in about 2050, and Cyril will still be there. And uh, still <laughs> say next year's the big year. Nick, you're so old, you ain't going to live to 2050, mate. That's really unkind. I need 85. <laughs> <laughs> Sam's claiming to be 38. I'm not sure I believe that. Yeah, that's him. That, that, yeah, yeah, he's, okay, a, yeah. he's a politician. Never believe a word he says. It's true, 128. <laughs> uh, when we uh, talked about Racing Point, we didn't mention Otmar Schnaffnauer. Um, Actually, we couldn't spell it. But is he in a similar position to Cyril Abitabool? Well, not really, because uh, everyone, no. everyone looks at Lauren Stroll now as the boss, really, don't they? I oh, know. I don't think so. Lawrence Stroll isn't the boss. He's the, he's, he's the he's money. money but he's certainly he's not. Yeah. He's not making any decisions really, apart from possibly with some drivers. Yeah, I don't think he's making the driver decisions either. Um, it's going to be interesting to see what happens when Aston Martin gets involved. Whether anybody from the Aston Martin organisation comes across to run the Formula One team in Otmar's role, I, I wouldn't. I wouldn't be entirely shocked to see David Richards reappear on the scene. Because as Aston Martin racing, surely they wanted a Brit on top. Rather Does than David a, really a... want to do the circuit again? 
Yeah, I think he probably does. I, I, I was around a bit, bizarrely, I was around his house um, in the summer and had a good long chat with him about it. And he was, and he was, um, it's a very lovely house, great history. Um, and he was, he kept on reminding us that he'd been in, you know, his time in Formula One. I don't think he, I think he feels that's a little bit of unfinished business there. Interesting. Uh, anything else to say on Renault? Bon. Oh. No. Très mal. Uh, so the final team alphabetically, uh, but this year uh, I think we might be able to say not going to be at the back of the grid. Uh, Rocket Williams Racing. Yes. Why do you well they're done. not going to be at the back of the grid? Because I think Haas will be at the back of the grid. I don't You're think they're wrong. going to be anywhere near the front, but they're not not going to be. Uh, consistently three seconds off the pace of the car in front um, and they might be ahead of the car in front no 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 just no the car the car in testing looked awful absolutely awful I mean it, it looked slow it didn't handle well it it is it is not a good racing car by the look of it and no way is it worse than the Haas the Haas didn't look that bad. I mean, he didn't look brilliant, but the 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 Williams is clearly, clearly the last car out there. Nick, are you going to disagree? Uh, I haven't. I didn't get a chance to see it apart from on TV, and and uh, Sam saw it for real. I think you know. Then let's be honest about this. Their aim, I think, for the year was not to be cast adrift. Their aim was to be actually up with the worst team, and therefore, if they are within a few tenths of the worst team, they'll think they've they've succeeded. I mean, George Russell has said that they are still the slowest team. Um, they haven't helped their case by getting a a, a pay driver in uh, in Nicholas Latifi, but they need to because they haven't got any money. Um, all Russell can hope is they're close enough for him to show how good he is, so he can try and usurp uh, Valtteri Bottas when it comes to uh, contract renegotiation time in eight months' time. Shall we hear from Nicholas Latifi? Yes. Uh, it's a dream come true for me, something I've been working towards for almost half my life, so about 12 years. Uh, yeah, I'm extremely excited, extremely motivated, and I can't wait to get started. Uh, so the drive of Williams definitely came about as a kind of evolution of my role with the team this year. Uh, you know, being the reserve and test driver, I've been quite immersed in the team, you know, in the simulator, taking part in a lot of FP1s, the rookie test days, uh, and things like that, as well as kind of dovetailing that uh, with a, a full race season of Formula 2. Uh, obviously, I performed quite strongly in Formula 2, qualified for the super license, uh, and things just kind of went from there. And uh, yeah, I, I made it very clear from the beginning of the season, it was my goal to be in a full-time race seat next year. Uh, was always going to be my last year in Formula 2 coming into the season, so the goals were, and targets were set very high. Uh, and yeah, we just kind of uh, reached an agreement and yeah, extremely excited to get going. <laughs> so the thing that made me want to drive for Williams in Formula 1 is obviously it's one of the greatest teams uh, in history. Uh, you know, there's a lot of pedigree uh, behind the name. Uh, it's had a history of developing a lot of young drivers. Uh, you know, although the past years have been very difficult, uh, you know, the work has already begun to, to develop the cars. And I, you know, I have full confidence that the team will get back to, you know, the competitive 
uh, nature that they are used to competing in. Uh, and you know, as, as well for me, one of the things that's been quite, uh, let's say, inspiring and motivating is even in the face of a very adverse year this year, still seeing all, all the people on the track at the factory pushing and still giving 100% effort as if they are still in the fight uh, is something as a driver that's you know extremely motivating and it's kind of fueled me even more to, to add to that. You know, the first thing is the fitness. Uh, you know, races are much longer now than, than in Formula 2. Uh, it's, it's a bit of a different fitness requirement, uh, some more so focus on, you know, the higher G-forces, specifically the neck, a bit more cardio. So I'll definitely be upping the fitness program a bit in the winter time to, to suit that. Uh, then in terms of all the other aspects, you know, there's definitely going to be a lot of things uh, that are going to be new to me that I'm going to have to learn. So I'm going to be spending a lot of time at the factory as much as possible with the engineers and the simulator, just kind of getting used to all the new procedures, little sequences that, you know, I might not have had to deal with in Formula 2 or might not have had to deal with in my outings in the Formula 1 car so, uh, so far. Uh, and yeah, just kind of uh, expanding any knowledge I can from, from the engineering side of things. And again, yeah, most of that is going to be done kind of at the factory, just getting acclimatized as much as possible. So being from Canada, I definitely feel a great sense of pride, you know, representing them on the world stage. You know, we're going to have two Canadians on the grid now, Formula One, which is, which is amazing. And I don't really see it creating a kind of rivalry. I just see it's something amazing for the sport. Uh, the Montreal Grand Prix is one of the most popular ones on the calendar. You know, the fans really embrace it. And don't no, I think it's been like over 30, 35 years or something since there's officially been two Canadians on the grid in F1. So I think it's going to be in a very uh, exciting time for all Canadians. Very exciting time for Canadians, Nick. What I, what I like was he is, is the, you know, the, the blind ridiculousness of his statement that his drive came about as a natural progression from his test drive. His drive came about as a natural progression of his dad giving Williams a large check. Let's be honest about this. He's a pay driver. Um, you but he's a paid driver who finished as runner-up in Formula Two last season. Yeah, that is eleventh go. You know, it's not it, we, the last person to do that many years in um, F two or its equivalent and come into F one was Julian Palmer, and that didn't go very well, did it? Julian Palmer, you know, he's still in it. Julian Palmer was a Formula <laughs> Two champion. I thought you were going to say Giorgio Pantano. No, because but Palmer, you, 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 eventually, you know, the people who come to F1 and succeed the people who's in a maximum of two years in F2 you know that's that's what the, the point about it is, is, is a stepping stone it's not a a large you know mezzanine floor for your career you you go through it in one or two years and carry on up you don't hang around you happen to get lucky with the team you'll win or a particularly poor crop of other drivers and, and off you go I mean it's yeah I mean, Latifi's a pay driver well done well done Williams he's not a bad driver he's a pay driver admit it he's going behind Russell he's not going to do the car the justice it has but hey if he's going to finish 20th rather than 19th does it matter don't know discuss Nicky Lauderstart is a pay driver just saying yeah I know, and everyone, everyone always says that. The world's very, very different. Because Nicky Ladder mortgaged his house. If you mortgage your house, even a nice house, you get half an hour in the car. It's a bit different these days. Don't think my house is worth that much. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I think it's... Uh, Williams that way you never invited Sam for dinner. That's right, yeah, exactly. he mortgaged to, to pay for his, his racing addiction. I mean, Russell obviously is the real deal. He needs to get a, a drive next year somewhere, hopefully, with, with he'll be hoping with, with Mercedes, which he can actually race against some at the moment. He's just beating people who are either pay drivers or had one arm, not so much tied behind their back, but severely damaged in a, in a rallying accident. Uh, let's go back to the car. Uh, as someone with an engineering background, Sam, what's wrong with it? I wish I knew. It just, I mean, it's not the power unit, 
because, well, other than the slightly reliability wobbles we've seen on the other two Mercedes powers cars, it can't be that. It's a good power unit. It just I can't understand. For for some time, I've been wondering where Williams is going wrong because this isn't a team that suddenly forgot how to make good racing cars. You know, they were winning races not all that long ago. I mean, Pastor Maldonado's, you know, Spain win wasn't that long ago, but it seems like an eon ago because the cars just recently have been they've been so far off the pace, and I just can't understand how Williams can build a car that's just that bad. These engineers, they're not stupid. So I don't know. Is there something fundamentally wrong with its wind tunnel, with 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 the CFD? I mean, Claire Williams has been attracting an awful lot of blame for these problems, and well, I don't think that's fair. She's not in charge of designing the car, but the people who are designing the car, they know how to design racing cars. So I just, it just seems to be an all-round bad racing car. But do you not feel at some point the people in charge who are running the team need to be responsible for the mistakes of the people who have designed the car after many many years of not being very good well i completely agree they just need to but i think they don't currently understand those problems and i think that's the big issue i mean do you think that do you think that when they have the choice of removing one senior member of staff it should be the senior member of staff who had come off the back of several double wins with a championship winning team or the senior member of staff who's the daughter of the owner well, this is the thing. Well, Paddy, when Paddy Lowe left, the car, the performance didn't improve. So, you know, Paddy Lowe arrived at the team, the performance slumped. The, 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 he left the team, the performance didn't improve. So it says to me that perhaps Paddy Lowe wasn't the problem in that. He may have been part of the problem, but, I, you know, he's got good experience. So I can't quite place that. But the, to say it's Claire Williams' fault that the car it's is slow, around. I think is unfair. That- I'm not saying it's her fault. I'm just saying she's not the right person to lead the team. I mean, Patrick Head's back there. He knows how to run a yeah. racing team. So, Hanging around again, every other Tuesday. Well, it doesn't um, matter. He got a job done, didn't it? So, yeah, you know, got, a job, this, again, got a job done in 1997. Didn't, it, was, it was slowly not getting a job done during their gradual decline. Um, I, and no, It was good in the, the, the Montoya BMW-powered era as well. I mean, so, I, I, again, I don't think it's as simple, as clear-cut as that. I, I do I am starting to wonder is there is there something fundamentally wrong with some of the tools that Williams are using? There are still some odd design um, directions that the team have taken. It's the last team in Formula One to use a metal gearbox casing. Everybody else is using composite casings, maybe with a aluminium gear cassette inside well, it, like Mercedes. Part of their problem they, they they absolutely refuse to do any of the 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 the, 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 uh, the shortcuts which has or racing point they won't even use the mercedes gearbox because they insist they have to build their own I mean, that is that is, is that just they're never going to become you know an independent team at the front of the grid again that's going to need to design its own gearbox so why are they keeping going with that and, and effectively putting one arm behind their back when they have one that works perfectly well and it's probably lighter and more efficient I disagree with one of your assertions there, Nick, or not for the first time. Uh, to say that they're never going to be a front-running team again, I think is wrong. I, I think they can be a front-running team again, and, and I can understand why they want to do their own gearbox for that reason, and that makes a lot of sense to me. And it also... Can I ask you a question, a serious question about this? What is the compromise that they are avoiding by not using the Mercedes gearbox on the back of the Mercedes engine? 
losing skills. So by having the skills to develop, design and develop and construct and operate your own gearbox in-house means that you, they, it's much easier for Williams to be able to swap engine supplies. So you remember when Sauber were looking at the Honda power units, Sauber in massive financial trouble. If Honda had gone to the Swiss team of Jorgsander at the helm, you know what? That would the Honda team, you know, or the Sauber Honda team, would probably have been in a much better situation than Alfa Romeo now are, because Honda, you know, worked their problems through, and they now look like their competitive power unit. And with the extra funding that Honda bring to a team, I think it would have really aided Sauber. And I think we still have the Sauber name on the grid, or maybe it would be Honda Racing F1 by now. But, but if if Williams were to switch to Honda engines, they'd take a Honda gearbox. Honda don't what? make a gearbox. Right. They make a Red Bull gearbox, don't they? They just buy yeah, a Red Bull but, gearbox as well. Yeah, but that's the thing. If Red, you know, that was the problem because, and that's why Honda never ended up in the back of the Sauber because McLaren would not supply Sauber with the gearbox. Sauber didn't have the skills to make its own gearbox. So it lost out on, I think, a, a massive, I think something like 190 million euros that you get from Honda from running the engine. Yeah, but that was, that was McLaren in their, in their most um, ridiculous period, wasn't it? Well, it really um, was, but but if you haven't got a gearbox that's designed for your car, you are at a disadvantage. And if yeah, another are you are you moving into twenty twenty one? Are you when everything's coming standardised and there are only three engines and the engines all have gearboxes associated and, and people want to sell you their gearboxes to make money back on this this cap? I know what you're saying historically, and I understand historically where well actually historically because I just bought a Hewland gearbox, but I understand what you're saying. But it just seems to be completely unnecessary resource diversion of, of of concentration when the Mercedes gearbox is blooming good, lighter, stiffer, and available. You know, all right. I'm, I'm, yeah, you'd have to redeploy or, or or lose some gearbox technicians. And you ever got to the point where you had to make your own gearbox? There's no shortage of people making specialist gearboxes in the carbon fiber triangle. I think I think for Formula One spec gearboxes, there's very few companies who can do it. You couldn't just go to X Track and demand a complete I'm I'm transmission. You can get the internal. You can get the internals, and a lot of teams do. I think Williams actually get their internal from Extract. But it's the external casing that's very difficult to do. Yeah. Now, I think I, yeah, to I, say it's not as I don't think I don't think it's right to say it's not as stiff as well as, as as the Mercedes. I think it's equally as stiff, if not stiffer, because it's a more substantial lump of stuff. But Williams do know how to build a damn good gearbox. And I don't think they're losing a huge amount of performance by doing their own gearbox. I don't think that's the factor. That that, you know, they've done their own gearbox forever and you know until very recently Toro Rosso did its own gearboxes and that wasn't holding them back you know by having your own gearbox you can read you can define your own rear suspension you don't have to buy that in you know you, it gives you a lot more freedom with your design so it should be a big advantage and it's at a big advantage as i say going forward if another power unit manufacturer suddenly did come come out of the woods i don't know hyundai or porsche or somebody came in to do a, a power unit i can't see anyone coming in imminently but it's possible and Williams is well placed for that, particularly as a team that you could really turn around. But that doesn't answer the question of what's wrong at Williams. And I think they need to bring in, and this is something Claire Williams needs to do, I do think they need to bring in new technical leadership. And it's got to be somebody fairly radical. I think it could be someone like Jörg Zander, who's, who's you know, known to come in and push things through. I think Mike Gascoigne's probably been out of it too long, but he'd be sort of character you need to completely shake things up and start over and work out what's going wrong in that team. Because there is, as Racing Point shows, there is no excuse for building a slow racing car with that power unit in the back. Uh, let's move on to our predictions for the season then. 
let's go with Constructors Championship first. Mm-hmm. Uh, Nick Damon. What, the winner? Yes. Uh, Mercedes. Okay, Sam? Mercedes. Yeah. Uh, and let's move on to Drivers' Championship. Uh, Sam? Lewis Hamilton. Nick? Lewis Hamilton. Okay. Rookie of the Year? There's only one, isn't there? Yes. Yeah. Nicholas Latifi Nicholas Nicholas to win Rookie of the Year. Lovely. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I'm, uh, Nick, Nick Cassidy getting a last-minute Alfa Tori drive and scoring more points than... Uh, Queen Latifah. It's not a bad call, actually. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I think there's a Japanese driver who's ahead of him on the uh, pecking order, but yeah, Naoki Yamamoto could could could, could come and do that yeah. as well. Uh, wonderful. Thank you for your time this evening, gentlemen. And uh, we will uh, reconvene at the end of the season and uh, find out if we were right. Well, I was. Nick wasn't. That's true. I'm never right. That's right. (laughs) This program is a Radio Show Limited production. Tell your friends there's more at RadioLeMond.com.